This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, hi. Yes, it's producer Alex again. Again, I know uh, this wouldn't be hell if our bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz didn't get sick a bunch every couple years and miss some shows. If only Chuck's health problems were the kind that got fixed by smoking weed and hanging out at a bar, we'd uh, never miss a show. But I have a real good episode picked out for you today. It is the best of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Remember that whole thing uh, that everyone who isn't rich is still living through? Well, get ready to understand it way better with six big interviews exploring the causes and effects of the most recent and ongoing global financial crisis. This week, we'll hear from Jeff Foe, Anne Pettifor, James Steele, Kai Wright, Robin Hanel, and Michael Hudson as the crisis unfolded live on the radio on This Is Hell. All right, let's go. Here's Jeff Foe. On the line with us right now is Jeff Foe. He is founder and former president of the Economic Policy Institute. Go to their website at epinet.org. He is currently a distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute. That's something I will never be a distinguished fellow. Jeff's most recent article was a piece... You have to work at it, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe if I wear like a bow tie and a cummerbund, that might help. Uh, Jeff's most recent article was a piece in The Nation uh, entitled, Is This the Big One? Jeff is also a contributing editor to American Prospect and a member of the editorial board of Dissent. Thanks so much for coming back on our show, Jeff. Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, You begin your Nation article writing, uh, For more than a decade, we Americans have been living on an economic San Andreas fault, a foundation of fracturing competitiveness covered by unsustainable consumer spending with money borrowed from foreigners. A financial earthquake was inevitable. First, do you believe economists across the ideological ideological spectrum knew this all along, knew that this is where we were? Well, I think there are different stages of of knowing. Uh, I think there's a uh, you know there's a lot of denial that that goes on among economists like uh, like everybody else. But uh, it's hard to believe that anyone who wasn't paying attention. Uh, and had a uh, you know had any background in economics could not understand that you cannot go on forever uh, buying more from the rest of the world than you're selling, and having your uh, consumers who represent seventy percent of the uh, you know the whole economy uh, out there maxed on credit cards uh, with stagnant wages and uh, turning to refinancing their housing uh, as the only way to keep their living standards up. Uh, Throw on top of that this subprime uh, mortgage uh, uh, scandal that's been brewing for the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, you just sort of look at this, and it was hard for anybody to imagine that this was not going to bust at some point. Now, of course... Uh, you know, people say, well, you know, it's going to be a while. Uh, it's not going to happen today. It's going to happen sometime in the future. Uh, but it was going to happen sometime, and it caught up with us. Do you think, I mean, uh, you mentioned that kind of a, a level or degree of denial. Do you think that that's the same thing with maybe, I don't know, the, uh, the media or even the average consumer, American consumer themselves? Do you think that they were in denial about this, or do you think that it should have been, you know, incredibly obvious to everybody, media or, uh, you know, person on the street, uh, that, you know, this was going to happen, that we were going to have the bottom fallout, that we can't continue just spending our way into uh, economic uh, success? 
Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, everybody had a piece of this. Um, but you would have expected that people who are elected and uh, paid uh, to be our leaders uh, would be, you know, a little bit more responsible than uh, than the average citizen uh, who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about economics. But listen, you know, you just walk down the street and talk to people uh, across America, and everybody was aware that uh, we were floating on a sea of debt. Now, one of the things you get uh, if you look at the polls is that people say, "Well, uh, the country's going to hell," uh, as it were. But uh, I'm going to be okay. And, um, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, it takes a better psychologist than me to figure out. But there's clearly some disconnect between what, uh, uh, you know, people were sort of knowing about the country and, uh, you know, this notion that, well, somehow they were going to be okay. Yeah, it's a really good point because, you know, I just saw in Harper's Index this statistic that said 55% of American homeowners still believe that their home is going to be going up in value in the next year. Right, yeah. And, yeah. It's, it's, um, there is this notion that somehow, uh, you know, I'm disconnected from what's going on all around me. And I think one of the things that's uh you know that's gradually happening in some places not so gradually is that people who uh you know didn't have a subprime mortgage people who paid their made their mortgage payments on time people who you know are not maxed out on their credit cards and and are doing what they're supposed to do and are are reasonably frugal citizens uh suddenly find that the value of their house is going down when you know they have to move or uh, they need the, the money for refinancing for an emergency. Uh, that is, when the foreclosure signs start going up in the neighborhood, um, you know, uh, your house is vulnerable just like uh, the guy next door who was uh, taking out all this credit that he couldn't afford. Yeah, you know, I was, that was actually going to be a question I was going to ask you because uh, my girlfriend bought a condominium in 2003. We bought in a neighborhood that is not, you know, necessarily a very, you know, the, like the nicest neighborhood. So we did get a pretty good deal on this place. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it went up in value about maybe 20%. I wouldn't be surprised if it dropped back down in value another 25% uh, just because of the way that the market works. Because the thing that I was thinking about, uh, it, especially your example with foreclosures, because the thing that that immediately struck me when I heard this idea about bailing out subprime borrowers is why should I, and I heard this from every, you know a lot of people yeah. on the right, why should I reward these people for doing something that I didn't do, that I knew was better? They were being uh, essentially greedy. They were being you know uh, far too optimistic. So uh, explain to me why I should care. Why should I want those people to be bailed out uh, when I have been following all the rules? Well, the first thing uh, you got to understand is that this proposal, the, the latest proposal uh, in uh, uh, in Congress to bail out uh, subprime uh, uh, mortgage holders, or, or bail, actually, it's not bailing out the the, uh, the 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 owner of the home; it's bailing out, um, or it's it's giving a a seven thousand dollar tax rebate for people who buy foreclosed homes. Now, if you ask yourself, so who owns a home that's been foreclosed? It's not the guy who originally bought it, right? Because he's out of it. It's the bank that owns it. 
or speculators who are now buying up houses in some of these uh, in some of these neighborhoods. Uh, so it's just you know uh, even even there. Uh, the people who are the individuals who are really in trouble are not getting it. But the second point, I mean, the first point you make is is uh, is a reasonable one. Uh, why is it that uh, you know people who made these decisions, foolish, maybe not understanding or whatever, um, uh, you know, get help when I'm next door and I've done everything right and uh, my uh, uh, I don't get any of that help. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, it's the kind of, uh, the, the question and the unfairness of this comes because we don't generally, uh, do enough to make sure that these kinds of boom and bust cycles don't occur. And so when they do occur, you get the bailout, right? It's not only the, the guy next door who, uh, over leveraged his credit cards, but you get the bailout of Bear Stearns and all the people who were, were Bear Stearns creditors. So we have a system that, uh, as I said in my article, it's like it, it's like the government is an enabler of uh, periodic uh, drunks that Wall Street goes on, and uh, they go out and smash the place up, and then uh, you know the taxpayers pay for it, and in that panic. Uh, in order to prevent uh, what uh, people are afraid of, that is a big downturn. Uh, a lot of people get bailed out who uh, who shouldn't, and a lot of people don't get anything who deserve it, deserve something. I got to ask you, I got to get your reaction to something I saw on CNBC on Thursday. I mentioned it earlier on this morning's show. Uh, there were these two, quote-unquote, economic Experts. They never said if they were economists. They had words like advisors, uh, writers, you know, but they never said that they were actual economists. Uh, but one expert said that the housing, and the other guy agreed with them, the housing market is simply correcting itself after overpricing overvalued uh, homes for too long. But uh, it, the big thing that they said was this whole thing is because uh, the government forced banks to give out subprime loans, forced banks. And they said that they forced banks because when you look at the mortgage paperwork, when you look at the loan paperwork, it says Federal Housing Authority right on it. This was their big evidence. It says Federal Housing Authority on it. So that means that this is bad government regulation and we need to deregulate the market more. What's your reaction to somebody who's blaming the government for this problem and not banks? You know, the world is a complicated place, and sometimes things are, are uh, not totally wrong. But this is a case where that's totally wrong. I mean, the, what drove the subprime mortgages is the fact that the, that the banks and the, the mortgage bankers who were making these deals were getting extraordinarily high interest. You know, these were not, these were, these were deals where you could uh, get into a house for nothing down or very little down. But you look at that paper and it came with a very high uh, interest rate over the long term. That's why this happened. So it was a, it was a combination of real estate brokers and mortgage bankers and Wall Street financiers who were driving this. What they did was that they uh, convinced people who couldn't afford a house that they could 
buy this house and make the mortgage payments if they constantly refinanced so that every couple of years, you know, as the housing prices were supposed to go up forever, they refinanced and they could make their mortgage payments. The federal government had nothing to do with that. The the problem was that the federal government was not doing its job, and that is it was not regulating these people. It was allowing this to happen over the last decade, even when there was plenty of evidence that this was going to be a disaster. So we had Alan Greenspan, head of the Federal Reserve, you know, who uh, about a year and a half ago was saying the uh, the, the little blip in the housing uh, housing uh, uh, area, the house housing price area was over, and uh, and housing was going to continue to go up. Uh, so you had the Federal Reserve uh, encouraging this. You had the Securities and Exchange Commission, who was supposed to be regulating uh, a lot of these securities that were based on the mortgage, uh, sort of looking the other way. So the failure here was a failure of government regulation, not that government was forcing banks to uh, to uh, make subprime mortgages. Uh, that is just totally and flatly wrong. You talk about this bust and boom, these bubbles bursting. We had Eric Franzen uh, on. I keep mentioning it because uh, it's. I just found the article so interesting. The January uh, Harper's, he had a front page article uh, talking about booms and busts, and he says that he believes that the next uh, bubble, the next boom is going to be in green technology. But when you think about these, uh, these booms and busts, and you think about the internet boom, and you think about the uh, housing bubble, uh, these all started in the 90s. And it seems like the economic boom of the 1990s was all founded kind of on a house of cards. Is this the Clinton legacy that Hillary will bring to Washington? And what does that mean for the average working American? I mean, is is the legacy of the Clinton administration, not that the economy was doing well, but the economy was doing well for some people due to this erratic market behavior that isn't good for the economy in, in general? Yeah, I think there was some, there's certainly some of that. The the the, uh, the good times that uh, the economy had in the late 1990s uh, were in part uh, a, a result of that uh, the dot com bubble of those years. Uh, I don't think you can blame the. Uh, uh, I don't think you can uh, attribute. Uh, a lot of that bubble to the housing, uh, uh, you know, the housing price bubble. But there's no question that what happened in the late 90s was that uh, the uh, the markets got excited, uh, the uh, the money poured in, uh, uh, prices went up, uh, everybody was making money, and then they were spending it in restaurants and you know houses and other places like that. And so uh, there was a boom, and it was, you know, that was one of the few that we've had in the last 25 years that actually spread the wealth a little bit. For the first, for about two or three years, the wages actually started to uh, uh, started to go up. Uh, so it was a mixed bag in the 90s, but I wouldn't uh, say that it was, uh, you know, all of this is the Clinton legacy. I mean, what it is is a legacy of, the deregulation of the financial markets that really began in the 1970s under Jimmy Carter. Uh, uh, the Republicans, of course, pushed it. The Wall Street guys pushed it. Uh, and the Democrats uh, went along. 
Uh, it accelerated in the 80s when Reagan was president. And then we had this, this savings and loan bust, uh, which cost the country about $400 billion to bail out uh, those banks. Uh, it continued in the 90s. We had the long-term capital management uh, bust. We had Enron in the, uh, just about in the year 2000. Uh, and we had the dot-com bust. Now we've got this. This is what our capitalism has become especially over the last 25 years. And while uh, I'd have to say that the Republicans are mostly responsible, there's a lot of Democratic fingerprints on this as well. You know, uh, people keep talking about how uh, cutting taxes is always the way to go. Cutting taxes is, you know, giving people tax rebates and cutting taxes is always the way to go. You were just talking about how the SNL bailout, $400 billion. The Bear Stearns bailout, uh, $30 billion. I'm just wondering, this is just off the top of my head, but I mean, can people see, or is there a correlation uh, to the you know, amount of tax cuts that we're, uh, you know, getting, and at the same time, the amount of additional taxes that we're having having to uh, divert over to these kind of bailouts? Sure, uh, you know, the the tax policy of the last twenty years has been to favor people at the top, and who is it that's running up all these, uh, you know, stock market bubbles. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the investors. It's the people in the top, uh, 10%, 5% of the income and wealth pyramid. So uh, the more you uh, shift the burden of taxes downward and you, you know, relieve the rich of having to pay the taxes, the more of this you're going to get. It's not the whole story. But that certainly uh, certainly contributed to it. You were mentioning how this is showing that deregulation, uh, just the you know, the kind of deregulation that we've had in uh, American capitalism since, as you said, uh, the evil Jimmy Carter. You didn't say evil. I did. No. no. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but uh, since since then, uh, deregulation. This has uh, been proven wrong. Yet still, I haven't seen an open debate on any of the news networks about the damages that deregulation yeah. has caused. And, and yeah. instead. I hear, you know, glowing obituaries for Milton Friedman and what a genius he was, not how his deregulated economic ideas would in the end be devastating to Americans. So do you think American popular opinion or faith has left the so-called free market way of looking at the economy yet? Or is it just so kept out of the public debate that this still isn't being considered? I think it's more of the latter. Uh, That is... uh, uh, you know, it's 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 not in the popular debate. Now, if you read, you know, the New York Times uh, or, uh, you know, you will find uh, the evidence of this disaster. Uh, but if you get your news from TV, uh, what you'll get is a headline. And, uh, you know, the Secretary of the Treasury, a uh, former co-chair of Goldman Sachs, says, well, you can't blame... Uh, uh, you know, lack of regulation in the securities market for this. Well, of course he's not going to blame the lack of regulation. Uh, the guy who was the Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton was also former co-chair of Goldman Sachs. And he was on NPR the other day, uh, you know, giving his wisdom about this. And they asked, well, you know, do you think that there, there wasn't enough regulation? Oh, no, no, no. He said, you know, that's not the problem. Well, you know, uh, the press turns to these people who have massive vested interest in keeping the reality, you know, off the radar screen of, of the American people. 
uh, you know, it's it's really it's getting harder and harder for them to do it. I mean, uh, Bob Rubin was another one of these geniuses like Greenspan, and uh, he's been the chief uh, uh, chair of the executive committee of Citigroup, uh, and now Citigroup may be teetering on bankruptcy. So uh, you know, and part of it is the it is the is the hype of the media uh, when stocks are going up. Uh, you know, you get these great uh, profiles in the newspapers and profiles on television, the magazines of the, you know, of the of the genius who uh, you know made a hundred billion dollars last year by speculating in something that you never heard of, um, and then it pops and the press is on to something else. You know, this uh, just reminds me of how, I mean, there's clearly, it seems to be, there's clearly an inherent conflict of interest when the guy from Treasury is also from Goldman Sachs. Um, And in 2000, when in the run-up to the 2000 election, I went to a few chat rooms to see what people were saying about the two presidential candidates. And one thing I kept seeing over and over and over again were uh, people saying, you know, we need to have... uh, George Bush is the next president of the United States because businessmen are more efficient, businesses are more efficient than government, and we need to have this country run like a business by businessmen. Does this show to uh, the American public that, in fact, that's not the right idea, and the people who should be running Treasury, and I hate to say this, I think there'll be a conflict of interest with you, should be economists? <laughs> well, I don't know about economists. <laughs> economists are a mixed bag. Okay. But but one of the things that what we've that we've lost over the last twenty twenty five years is a competent civil service. You know, uh, it used to be that we had people in the Securities Exchange and, and we still have some commission and the Treasury Department. You know, the legacy from the New Deal was that you had people who went to Washington who had a sense of government service, who stayed with those uh, you know in the bureaucracy. Uh, which is a sort of uh, uh, you know a, a, a term of a derogatory term these days, but you need people who have some uh, you know a dedication to public service, understand what these markets are, and will you know can represent the American people in their regulation. What we've had over the last twenty five years or so is the demoralization of uh, the regulatory structures, the demoralization of the, of the civil service. And so, you know, the best, uh, you know, your, your, your smart, uh, energetic, uh, uh, dedicated people, you know, don't want to go work for the government anymore because the government is run by, you know, Wall Street cronies. And something like the Treasury Department, uh, you know, gets to be a place where, uh, you go from Wall Street to the Treasury Department for a couple of years. You learn about the tax system, and then you know you know which files are where. And then you go back uh, and you become a lobbyist or you know a Wall Street attorney. And uh, you know you get you've gotten educated by the Treasury Department. So you got this revolving door of people, and so it's no surprise that. The U.S. government, which is supposed to have the ultimate responsibility for doing uh, this kind of regulation, uh, you know, is is uh, has been indifferent, uh, and that's a real tragedy. And that's something that people never focus on. You know, oh God, you know, bureaucrats. Who cares about them? But boy, 
those are the people who the, you want looking over the shoulders of these uh, these Wall Street racketeers. Uh, you. Uh... You write about how um, since the Great Depression, the most severe economic downturns, two back-to-back downturns uh, that began in 1979, drove price increases and the unemployment rate uh, to double digits. Mm -hmm. Will it be that bad this time around? Well, you know, nobody knows the future and uh, never listen to an economist to tell you exactly what's going to happen. But uh, this looks like uh, the worst situation that we've had uh, since the end of World War II, essentially since the Great Depression. And the, and the International Monetary Fund, which is uh, you know very much uh, uh, pro-international finance, etc., uh, came to the same conclusion a few days ago. Uh, they said the situation in the United States is the worst uh, since uh, the Great Depression. We've, we haven't had, uh, you know, the... The uh, uh, the undercutting of the consumer the way uh, we're, we're having it right now. Uh, again, think about this: that for the last twenty years or so or more, uh, real wages in the United States have been stagnant. Uh, consumer debt is uh, at an all-time high, and we are now in a situation where, since the first time since 1945. Repeat, 1945, we've got uh, the total amount of equity in American homes is less than the total amount of debt. So we're looking at, you know, an unprecedented situation. Now, there's something else that's different, and this is also different from the 1930s. We have an economy now that's, uh, you know, much more connected to the global marketplace. So when we have this tax break, this tax rebate stimulus, you know, that where everybody's going to get a check, not everybody, but most people are going to get a check in May, uh, a lot of that, uh, common sense tells you, is going to go right to China because our, the structure of our economy has changed and we don't make a lot of things that consumers buy anymore. So, uh, so the government... Uh, stimulus, especially if it comes in terms of uh, you know tax rebates for consumers, uh, is not going to stimulate the economy the way it used to. Jeff, did you hear this story? I uh, my girlfriend uh, came running in the house out of her car and she was she was uh, pulling up from work and she said, "Did you are you listening to NPR right now?" And I said, "No." And she goes, "I just heard something on NPR that I cannot believe that some of these tax rebates people aren't getting the money." They're getting a product. You know, somebody told me that. Actually, my wife did. <laughs> and um, I can't believe it. I have not seen it anyplace. Uh, and the way, at, le- at least she told me it was described on, uh, uh, on NPR, just uh, it, it doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't understand it. But I have heard it. Uh, that, well, I've, I've, somebody else... Uh, you know, my girlfriend was listening to the same program. Yeah, because then what I heard was, it, or what uh, she had told me was that it was somebody in Arizona or New Mexico, and all of a sudden they got an air conditioner yeah. in the mail. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, that that is a very weird story. And if it's true, uh, it's uh, it's beyond outrageous. But I have not heard that.
Uh, I'm just hoping that it's going to be like the old Wheel of Fortune where I can buy what product I want to get, you know? Yeah, no, no. In this case, they were, they just sent it. That was the, yeah. That's my understanding. <laughs> exactly. And seeing us out, we're, we were speculating that because we're, you know, up here in Chicago, we're getting a snowblower. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> uh, you know, in, uh, I wanted to get back to this uh, civil service thing that you brought up. Do yeah. you think that any of the presidential candidates that we're looking at right now, any of these three presidential candidates, uh, can they do anything to uh, revitalize the civil service, re-energize the civil service, or is it so ingrained in the message that we hear in the media today and from politicians that, you know, you just can't trust the government? I mean, you even hear that uh, far, to a far lesser degree, but you even hear that from the Democratic side. Do you have any hope that any one of these presidential candidates can re-energize the civil service sec- sector? Well, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm never hopeless, <laughs> But uh, in order to re- in order to bring better people or good people, in order to bring dedicated people into the government, uh, first thing you have to do is revitalize government. First thing you have to do is make clear to people that uh, you know, in a democracy, the government is the, is our instrument for doing those things that uh, we need to do collectively because we can't do them ourselves. And uh, the Democratic Party has just been uh, unbelievably timid and inhibited uh, by uh, by the by the Republicans on this. If if you remember back to the election of 2000, and it happened again in 2004, uh, George Bush turned to Al Gore and says, uh, it looks at the camera, or it turns to the camera and he points to Al Gore and he says, uh, this man thinks that the government can spend your money better than you can. And I watched that, and Al Gore had no reply. I could not believe it. I could not believe that someone who had been in politics, a Democrat all these years, would not have an instant reply for nonsense like that. You know, I mean, you and I could figure everything. We'd probably, well, George, what, did you, what do you want to cut? The U.S. Marines, you know, the national parks, the, you know, and, but Gore had no reply. So there was nobody there, and this is the you know the the presidential debates are are at the sort of summit of our national dialogue. There was nobody there making the common sense uh, case for why we need uh, government in a democracy, especially in a complicated, advanced uh, economy like ours, uh, to do many things, and we need them to do it competently. The same thing happened with. Uh, you know, during the, uh, the the healthcare debate back in 1993, uh, you know, the right winger would get on the on the television show or the radio show and say, uh, you know, these people want the government to organize the healthcare system, uh, and the Democrat would say, Oh no, no, we're not talking about that. Well, of course we were talking about that. You know, it's the government agencies like Medicare and Social Security. Take three, four percent of the total revenue in administrative costs. Private insurance companies take fifteen, twenty percent. So all this nonsense about how the private sector is more efficient, uh, you know, is just uh, 
blowing smoke at people. You know, I uh, was uh, born in Detroit. I still spend a lot of time uh, going back and forth uh, to Michigan. And I see, uh, you know, as people in Michigan are calling it, you know, I see Michigan turning into the Mississippi of the Midwest. I see the manufacturing jobs just completely disappearing at, at, an, at seemingly an exponential rate. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's from the Cleveland area, and she was saying that the exact same thing is about to happen in Ohio. And I've been looking at manufacturing uh, statistics lately and seeing that, yes, the exact same thing it seems to be happening to Ohio. So, uh, you know, from all the economists and all the people who write on economics who have been on our show recently, they all say uh, the economy is going to get worse before it gets better. Michigan is in a horrible, uh, very dire situation. And I just wanted to use this as an example, but what's going to happen to Michigan at, during this economic downturn? Well, uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. And the problem here is that it may be a long time before they get better. Michigan and Ohio and the industrial Middle West actually ought to be in a good position right now because the dollar finally is you know, coming down, as anybody tries to go to Europe will tell you. Uh, and, uh, and that should make American products more competitive. The problem is that for the last 20 years, we have allowed the U.S. industrial base to shrink so that we don't make a lot of these things now, uh, you know, that that we used to make and would be competitive now because of the, the declining dollar. So there's a tragedy here because right now, uh, Michigan, Ohio, you know, northern Indiana, places like that, uh, ought to be looking at some good times because the declining dollar makes exports, you know, U.S. exports cheaper and imports more expensive. But because we've neglected the industrial sector and we've let it, you know, decline, it's just, I mean, we don't make television sets anymore. We don't make telephones. We don't make, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So there's a... In, nor, in under sensible conditions, uh, we would be looking at uh, a, a revival in Michigan and Ohio. Uh, but but the terrible policies of the last twenty years have uh, have made things uh, you know worse. You know, is there any talk about, or or is this even a, a solution? Just making subprime mortgages illegal? Uh. No, I don't think there's any any talk about that. But uh, you certainly can uh, you certainly can uh, the government certainly can create uh, standards, uh, you know, below which you can't fall. And and here the problem here is, you know, not so much that uh, people got into houses that they couldn't afford, but that the mortgages that they made were then turned into securities in Wall Street. And because, as I said before, because the mortgages uh, came with high interest rates, and that meant the guys on Wall Street were selling this paper uh, that appeared to say you can get higher returns by buying these mortgages. They turned these mortgages into securities. Then they sold the securities, and people who bought those securities went to the bank and used them for collateral for yet more loans. So the problem here is not just you know uh, in the neighborhood. The problem went all the way up to Wall Street, and the reason uh, the the real estate guys were pushing these subprime loans is because they could sell them at a real profit 
to this uh, financial pyramid. You, I also got to uh, ask you about Bear Stearns before we uh, let you go. I just got a couple more questions for yeah. you, Jeff. Uh, Bear Stearns, there's the $30 billion bailout that uh, Ben Bernanke is talking about uh, and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, being uh, aided in the purchasing of uh, Bear Stearns. Uh, ben Bernanke had argued um, in front of Congress the other day that we can't let a financial house like Bear Stearns go under. The impact that it would have on America would just be devastating. You talk about how if this, you know, bailout goes through, then it's possible for other places like Citigroup, uh, which may be going under, or other places that uh, would then assume that they would be getting bailed out as well. So how bad would it be if Bear Stearns wasn't bailed out? What would be the impact on on you and me? Well, it's hard to know. Uh, there, there clearly would be a risk. And here, you know, the problem, again, is they let these guys do what they want, and then when they get into trouble, uh, you know, they expect the government to bail them out because they're, quote, too big to fail, right? If, if Bear Stearns goes down, a lot of people who have uh, lent Bear Stearns money might go down. And that's what, you know, that's what they're for. And that might have happened. But it's a, uh, it's a symptom of the unregulated, uncontrolled, and completely irresponsible way uh, we have allowed these uh, the stock market, uh, the stock market, and, and the securities markets to operate. The federal government. This is unprecedented, by the way. The federal government has never bailed out a stockbroker. The the point of the Federal Reserve is to backstop commercial banks, not stockbrokers. So uh, you know, I, I don't have, uh, and and Ben Bernanke doesn't have. And this is the other point. Ben Bernanke's afraid that everything will collapse if if you let Bear Stearns go. Maybe, maybe not. But he doesn't know. And so, uh, you know, part of the other regulatory problem is that these guys come and they make claims that the world is going to come to an end. And the people uh, at the Fed, you know, no longer uh, are really regulating these people, so they have no way to judge the claim. And you know, it's like a uh, it's like a doctor or anything else. You err on the side of caution. So you know, uh, let Bear Stearns go. Maybe very little would happen, except the stock market would go down another ten points. That may uh, affect a lot of people who Ben Bernanke knows. It may not affect uh, you know most of the rest of us very much. Uh, but let Bear and Lehman Brothers, who people are talking about now, may be the next one. Uh, and then you've got a lot of other people who've lent them money who may be in trouble. So, um, you know, the, it's the uncertainty here uh, that, uh, you know, that that's the problem, and that the Fed and these people are not regulating these markets so that they know what the hell's going on. Um, and so they act in panic, and, and they, may, they may be right. I mean, I you know, I don't know if Bear Stearns would take down half the stock market with it. Uh, but I know we shouldn't be, you know, behind that eight ball. Yeah, and we shouldn't be in the position where we don't know yeah, what the, exactly. Uh, you write how, quote, if we use the 1979 to 1983 experience as a guide, we'd need some $600 billion to $700 billion in deficit spending. But in those days, the United States was still a creditor nation. Thanks to three decades of trade deficits topped uh, top by the cost of the Iraq War, we now depend on foreign lenders increasingly worried about the value of their U.S. bonds. As 
Lee Price, chief economist of the House Appropriations Committee, put it, we need as big a stimulus as our foreign lenders will allow us to get away with. This made me think about all those nuts on the right wing who are afraid of the U.S. losing U.S. sovereignty to some world government or the U.N. and how they have these U.N. free zones in some parts of the U.S. Has the U.S. lost its economic sovereignty through trade deficits and borrowing? Sure it has. And, uh, you know, and these right-wing nuts are, are they're, they're pointing their guns at the wrong thing. Uh, you know, it was, it was Ronald Reagan and George Bush and uh, George Bush the first and uh, Bill Clinton uh, who uh, opened up the U.S. economy uh, in a way that, uh, uh, you know, made our financial markets uh, uh, part of the world system made our uh, uh, our, our trade deficits uh, get turned into this huge debt, and the debt is being you know held by foreigners. The Chinese hold a trillion dollars in uh, uh, in uh, in U.S. assets because they have been selling us more, much more than we've been buying from them. So if you were worried about sovereignty. Uh, you know, forget about the UN. You ought to be looking at Wall Street. But uh, you know, that's not uh, that's not what these people do. But there's no question that we've lost the ability, uh, some ability to control the future. And every day that we that we have this trade deficit and the debts pile up, we're losing more and more of it. You know, the the the, uh, the Wall Street is being bailed out by government. A little bit by the U.S. government, but a lot by the Chinese government, the Saudi government. The Saudis are the biggest single shareholders in Citigroup, for example, the largest American bank, largest bank in the world. Uh, the, at a at $110, whatever the price of uh, oil is per barrel today, uh, the uh, the Arab sheiks are sitting on these uh, these. Uh, this oil land are making uh, a huge amount of money. They can't spend it in their own country. Uh, and one of the things they're doing is buying up uh, shares of American corporations. Now, here's the problem. Uh, you know, you can argue that it doesn't matter who owns uh, Citibank. They all do the same thing. The problem is that when Citibank or Bear Stearns or, you know, uh, any of these companies walk into Washington, the congressman and the senator assume that they represent American interests, right? So, uh, yes, of course, they're rich people and they represent the rich, but there's a sort of a general sense that, you know, what's good for Citigroup is good for America. Right. Well, that's no longer true. And and there's the real problem to our, our sovereignty and our democracy. Uh you know, it, when when somebody suggested four or five years ago that one of the ways to deal with the Social Security shortfall uh, is to have the Social Security Administration uh, invest in stock, and the howls that went up from Wall Street were unbelievable. Oh, you could never do that, they said, because government investment is inherently political and not economic. And here they are taking all this investment from government-owned funds in Saudi Arabia, in China, in Kuwait. Uh, and it's apparently, it's only the U.S. government's politics they're worried about. 
not the politics of these countries. Jeff, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Jeff Foe. He is founder and former president of the Economic Policy Institute. Check out their website at epinet.org, where he is currently a distinguished fellow. Jeff's most recent article was a piece in The Nation entitled, Is This the Big One? We have it directly linked at the front page of our website. Jeff is also a contributing editor to American Prospect and a member of the editorial board of Dissent. One last question for you, Jeff. Don't forget my book. My latest book is called The Global Class War. Global Class War, which we uh, and I want to thank you again. Uh, Wiley actually provided us with some during our Phonathon fundraiser in February, where we, oh, uh, for the sixth year in a row, set uh, the record for the most money uh, ever raised by a single radio show on our airwaves. So uh, I really appreciate your support, and I know that a lot of our listeners got that book. Yeah, Global Class Warfare, a fantastic book, which uh, Greg Pallas had tipped me off to, said that it was a fantastic book. Uh, Jeff, one last question for you, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. So... Uh, if I want to protect my finan- my current financial situation, uh, what should I buy to protect myself? Gold, silver, food, euros, or a gun? Yeah. <laughs> Be careful whatever you do. And in terms of buying, you know, gold and silver and stuff like that, uh, you know, the the time to buy anything is when its price is low. So, um, and of course, you know, you often never know how low it is until it goes up. And you said, I wish I, I wish I had bought it. Uh, probably things like gold and silver and, uh, and maybe euros, uh, you're too late. Uh, and if you're not one of these people who study the market 24 hours a day, you're probably too late in uh, buying almost anything. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I'm just going to buy a gold gun. Yeah, well, just save your money, <laughs> be careful, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and and do the right thing politically. Maybe a gold gun and then rob gold. somebody of their euros. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Can cover all of it. In bad, in bad times, burglary, robbery, uh, you know, uh, that's... Uh, uh, that may be more promising. Yeah, you could even use silver bullets. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Jeff, I really appreciate you being back on the show with us. Sure. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Chuck spoke with Jeff Foe in April of 2008. Hi, it's producer Alex. You are listening to a best of the 2008 financial crisis episode of This Is Hell. Next up, let's hear from Ann Pettifor from September of 2008. On the line with us right now is Ann Pettifor, Executive Director of Advocacy International. In the 1990s, she helped design and lead the international campaign Jubilee 2000, which we featured on the show back then. Uh, she is editor of the Real World Economic Outlook and author of The Coming First World Debt Crisis. That's not a brand new book either. This week she wrote the articles, The Week That Changed Everything and America's Financial uh, Meltdown Lessons and Prospects at the wonderful site, opendemocracy.net. She is talking to us from her home in Suffolk, England. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Good morning here. Yeah, Yeah, morning here, afternoon there. I apologize for the confusion. Uh, You know, you write about the global financial crisis. While, you know, here in the United States, and I'm sure that this would be the case probably anywhere in the world, you know, we the way that our media is, it's very parochial. Uh, So we're focused on how this crisis directly affects us here in the States. That's not to say that we don't realize this is going to have global repercussions due to globalizations, but it's just, you know, a matter of focus. So from your perspective in Suffolk, England, because we're not hearing this at all in the United States. On a Saturday afternoon in Suffolk, England, how does our financial crisis affect you overseas? 
Well, it affects all of us that um, have banks that have participated in the very integrated global financial system over the last couple of decades that have played the dangerous games that bankers got got involved in of uh, gambling with money um, that, in a sense, was um, uh, synthetic, that wasn't real. So, um, so, so we're all part of, a, you know, this is globalization, Chuck. This was what globalization was all about, was the right of money to travel where it wanted to across the world at whatever speed it wanted to, and for people who had money to be free to do so. So we live in an integrated financial system. Our world isn't entirely integrated. Our trading systems aren't entirely integrated, but our financial systems are deeply integrated. You know, I think that's a really great point that you're making, is that this is is about globalization. What we're hearing in the United States is that this is about deregulation. Nobody's using, and not even that many people are talking about the problems of deregulation. If you turn on any of our, uh, you know, all day, 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week uh, news networks that are all talking about uh, maybe the regula- maybe we deregulated a little too much. You might hear a little bit of that, but mostly they're in agree- an agreement that uh, something needs to be done and it needs to be done right now. And it's the same old people saying the same, you know, giving us the advice that gave us the advice in the past. You, yeah, and I think we need to be careful here, Chuck. And I think this is something that that your listeners really have to be alive to which is that what the people that have created this mess are now saying is that it's not the fault of the financial system, that it's not the fault of the people working in finance. And the person I'm quoting here in particular is Alan Greenspan. Oh, no, it's the fault of those people uh, engaged in the housing market. So you will hear them say that the cause of the crisis was the bubble in the housing market. It was those of us who borrowed money to go out and buy houses and paid more than we needed to and mortgaged up to the hills. That, I have to say, was not the cause of the crisis. And it's really disingenuous because what it does, it gets the bankers, it gets the central bankers, it gets Alan Greenspan off the hook. The fact of the matter is that the housing bubble would not have occurred if we hadn't in the first place had a credit bubble. And the credit bubble is the thing that fueled the housing bubble, it fueled the stock market bubble, it fueled the commodity price bubble, it fueled the art market bubble, you know, it fueled, fueled bubbles in all of these assets. If you look at the price of assets across the board, whether it's a racehorse here or a piece of jewelry there or a work of art there or a house or, or stocks and shares, these have all been massively inflated. Um, but they've been inflated by easy credit, not necessarily cheap money, but easy money. So that it was very easy. I mean, I remember 30 years ago, uh, it wasn't possible to, to take out a loan very easily. It wasn't possible to get a credit card. Um, and if you did, you had to queue at the bank and, you know, talk to the bank manager and, you know, he had to check out on you. Very quickly, in the 1980s and 90s, it became a matter of uh, of someone at the end of the telephone line granting you credit. So this easy credit was the thing that fueled the housing bubble. And we need to understand that because if we want to fix this system, we have to know what we analyze the causes correctly. And I'm afraid the finance sector is trying to, to blame the victims. The victims are the people who are losing their homes and their foreclosures and being foreclosed upon. But right now, finance sector is saying 
they are the ones to blame for this crisis. You know, I think every college student knows that. You know, you get as soon as you get into college here in the United States, the first thing that you, or even if you, as soon as you turn eighteen, the first thing you get in the mail is an application for a credit card. There's, yeah. you know, and and a, a you know relatively large line of credit. That's some, something that certainly did not happen in the past. But could have we had? Okay, so let's say we didn't have this easy access to credit. Could have we had the the economic growth that we have seen in the past? Could somebody could somebody say, well, look, the reason that we did this is so we can make sure that there'd be more money being spent and that people would have better access to goods and that our economy would keep uh, moving along because that's what creates jobs. I mean, what's wrong with the, what's wrong with giving people an easy line of credit if that ends up creating goods and creating jobs? Well, I mean, in that sense, they have absolutely got a point. What they made it possible to do was for us to live the good life to have economic growth, to have four-by-fours, to have anything we fancied, and to not have to pay for it or to have to pay for it, if you like, tomorrow, and to live beyond our means. And when someone came along to us and said, look, we can help you live, A, beyond your financial means, and B, beyond the ecosystem's means, beyond the ecosystem's budget, we all said, yippee, can we join the party? And it was a party, and let's give credit uh, where it's due, um, there was economic growth. The situation, the, the economy boomed and people did really well and people did really well in China. It boomed in China because we were, they were making all the goods that we were consuming. But we were living beyond our financial budgets and we were living beyond our ecological budget and we've got two crises as a result of that. Financial crisis on the one hand and a climate change crisis on the other. So I think the lesson is, yes, you get economic growth but you know, economic growth has to live within the, if you like, the finite capacity of the earth, and indeed, and also within our financial capacity. Finite, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you write about how, you know, we can't have the same orthodox economists making the same mistakes. We were already mentioning that within our conversation this morning. We can't have the same people uh, making the same mistakes, uh, the same people who are making decisions right now, making the same mistakes again. Five years ago, you were writing that, quote, the first world is approaching a major debt crisis. The reckless financial policies of leading Western powers in the last two decades make it likely that the next seismic debt crisis will be in America. America. You wrote that the post Bretton Woods international financial architecture, that is globalization, was so structured as to enable the United States to hoover up money from the rest of the world and use these resources to live beyond its means. It is this financial system which makes U.S. financiers so confident that the rest of the world will continue to finance their nation's extravagant spending bid. And you quoted David Goldman, head of debt research at Bank of America Securities, saying back in August 2003, this is when you were writing this, uh, you quoted him saying, America is at little risk for the foreseeable future simply because the world's capital has nowhere else to go. Why did you come to these conclusions and orthodox economists did not? Why were their conclusions so widely accepted while yours were apparently dismissed? Well, Chuck, can I say, first of all, that I was not alone. There were many economists that were warning, and I was joining in, if you like. You know, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to interrupt you, Anne, but the thing is, is that here in the United States, the your voice, the voice of people like you, the people who would have agreed with you, they were completely shunned from the national media here in the United States. There well, was no back and forth. There was no debate. Yeah. And the thing is, what you need to understand, that this is a really big ideological um, conflict, if you like. 
And so in those case, in that case, you know, the free marketeers, the people who were benefiting from this, made damn sure that we were kept out of the debate. What worried me in 2003 and still worries me is that innocent people who went out and did what Alan Greenspan encouraged them to do, spent money, you know, maxed out on their credit cards, um, adopted adjustable rate mortgages, which he celebrated, I think, back in 2004, did all the things that actually the, uh, the, the central bank and the government encouraged. What I worried about was that they were going to be the victims, and in the end, nobody was going to bail them out. And sure enough, you know, the, the, the fight that's going on, on on the Hill today is about how much of the bailout must be directed at the victims, all those people losing their homes, and how much must be directed at the persecutors, the people who created this crisis. So, um, you know, you need to know that the reason this happened was because this is a very big battle and there was big, big money at stake. And little old me, well, you know, <clears throat> I wasn't going to be that a, a look in there. But anyway... <laughs> The point is, it's on the record and it's there. You know, uh, you, uh, you, you know, as we were saying, uh, you uh, worry that the same Orthodox economists are going to be making the same decisions. You look at the people who are the two, I would say, uh, leading thinkers or leading policymakers right now in the United States. Uh, that is Ben Bernanke, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman, and uh, Hank Paulson, who is the Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, you, it, th- those are the two people who are going to be making the decisions on what we're going to be doing in this "quote unquote." bailout. Uh, and you, is there anybody who is more orthodox than these two guys? You know, uh, they're both, uh, you know, Ben Bernanke, a huge admirer of Milton Friedman, the complete deregulator, the guy deregulator, the guy who believed in free markets as an ideology so much so that uh, and people bought it so much so that he wins a Nobel Prize. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, uh, who until he became secretary, was uh, chief executive officer of Goldman Sachs, which is involved in investment banking, obviously the kind of banking we are now uh, bailing out. And he's worth $700 million. And on top of that, I mean, this is kind of an aside, but where does he start his political career, Henry Paulson? He's an assistant to uh, Nixon advisor John Ehrlichman, who was convicted of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, perjury during the Watergate scandal. I mean, this does not sound good. And you write, uh, neoliberal economists remain at the helm of this global economy and continue to disseminate potent misdiagnoses of what is happening. So considering these guys' background, what kind of bailout do you expect them to come up with? Well, I mean, they're going to come up with the kind of bailout that bails them out. And it doesn't just bail them out financially, Chuck, but it also bails them out intellectually, which is why we have to have these debates. And I have to say, the joy of the American system is that actually they're not going to make the final decision. America is a democracy, and I've been really heartened by A, the millions of people that have been sending emails and letters to their representatives this week and the the courage of the representatives to stand up for the finance sector. So that gives us all hope. But we need to, and which is why the opportunity to speak on your show is so important, we need to make sure that we have the debate and don't allow them to browbeat us intellectually. You know, one of the things I'm passionate about is that economics is not rocket science. Finance is not rocket science. You and I have to deal with it every day of our lives. We don't dress it up in fancy mathematical models, and we don't dress it up in fancy language. And when we don't do that, it's perfectly possible to comprehend the basic concepts of 
uh, of economics. But we get treated as if we're all idiots. And I think one of the first things I want to say to people is the other really great, wonderful thing we have now, which we didn't have before, is the internet. You know, the internet is allowing democratic free speech on this issue, whereas before we would have had to rely on the Wall Street Journal to tell us, you know, what was going on. Now we have the internet and people really need to use these uh, channels of communication to um, up their understanding of what's going on. Because when we understand what's going on and we understand the causes of the crisis, we can find the right solutions. And so I'm, I'm really passionate about it. And may I just give a little plug here? I have a, um, a blog and I've called it detonation.org, and it's spelled D-E-B-T-O-N-A-T-I-O-N. And I comment on that uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, uh, and that's why I'm hoping that unlike, and I don't want to get sidetracked on the SNL scandal, but I'm hoping that this time around uh, Americans just don't turn a blind eye or just ignore the situation yeah. because it's uh, too complicated. And, you know, deregulation and free market ideology is what, it's, what got us in the problem with the SNL scandal. And we just kept moving along with free market ideology and deregulation as yeah. if nothing happened. And may, I'm hoping that this time around that's not the case. Uh, yeah. you're, the, wait, the name of your uh, blog is... Is detonation again? D e b t o n a t i o n, and you call August seventh, two thousand and seven, the day of detonation. What happened on August seventh, two thousand and seven, that changed what's happening in the financial world right now? Well, interestingly, and this comes back to the first question you asked of whether or not this is something worldwide and not just an American problem. Interestingly, two German banks got into difficulties because they'd all got, you see, what happened at me? I don't want to go into this whole thing about derivatives, and I'm sure your readers and your listeners understand a lot about that kind of gambling that's been going on. But they'd got into trouble playing in the international capital markets and ratcheting up debts. And um, suddenly there began to be an awareness around the banks that little banks like regional banks in Germany had got into trouble and couldn't be relied upon, and they stopped lending to each other. And they thought, if those guys are in trouble... And the other thing is, quite a lot of what they have been up to, the banking sector, has been obscured from you and me, but also from each other. You know, they've, they've dressed it up in complex language, and they've hidden it away, and they, as, you know, Warren Buffett calls them weapons of mass destruction, because when he tried to understand how, how much... The, an insurance company had in liabilities, he couldn't understand it despite putting all his accountants to work on it. So this arcane obscuring of what was really going on meant that they suddenly looked around themselves to other banks and thought, bloody hell, you know, there is there is some lying and cheating being going on here, and I'm not sure I trust these banks. And they stopped lending to each other on August the 9th, 2007, and the system froze. And the big central banks had to pump money into the system uh, to act as a lubricant to try and encourage them to lend to each other because ultimately if they don't lend to each other, they won't lend to us. And the first seizure, if you like, of the banking system, um, this kind of freezing happened on August the 9th. But unfortunately, most of us weren't made aware of it. It was just something that was discussed in you know, the financial newspapers and it was discussed by economists and it was discussed in language designed to make us uh, unaware of what it was. And it wasn't until the first bank here in the Britain failed, Bear Stearns in the U.S. and Northern Rock here, that people began to wake up to something going wrong. But by that time, it had already happened. 
You know, and that's a really good point that you made, that it's also you can you can find this kind of information as it happens in the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and yeah. too many people uh, here in the United States who consider their uh, political perspective uh, skewed to the left. They don't look at those papers. They act as if, oh, I, why would I want to read these right-wing papers? When exactly. It, and, and and that, no, no. Noam Chomsky talks about this, how if you want to know what's going on in the world, read these papers because they're right out in the open about what's going on in the yes, world. Yes, exactly. They have to be. They have to inform their readers um, because, you know, if you don't have proper in- authoritative information and then you're in the finance sector, you get into difficulties. Exactly. Uh, so we need to, and we need to, I mean, it does take some getting used to their language and stuff because, as I say, they deliberately make it obscure. But there are ways of understanding it. But we need to be determined to educate ourselves. And we need to, you know, we've been in a bit of a bubble. We've been, I was watching uh, John Stewart's Daily Show the other day, and this, this image of a, woman, a girl falling off a high building into a bubble and, you know, listening to her music. We've worked round, walked around in this bubble thinking, oh, life's hunky-dory where we are and not looking at and what's going on there. And it's really vital that you know, you, everybody should educate themselves and understand because only that way can we be true Democrats. Uh, you also uh, discuss sovereign wealth funds. And you know what? First of all, I, wish, I really wish that that term didn't exist because basically it seems to me that this means, you know, state-run or, or centralized banks. Yeah, because that's that, what they are. That's what they are. But here in the United States, we, we have to use the words uh, sovereign wealth funds. And these sovereign wealth funds, uh, for a long time, they were bailing out groups like Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and then all the sudden they look at the books and they say wait a second we're not bailing you out anymore in particular you point out the korea development bank state-run korea development bank yes. looked at the books on 9 september 2008 to the astonishment of lehman's shareholders and investors this ever so reliable ally of washington washington refused to fund a bailout this is when all of a sudden you know the stuff hits the fan you know so uh what happened what did they see on august 9th 2000 or august 9th september 9th 2008 what did they see just a few weeks ago that made them say no more we're not our centralized banks our state run banks aren't giving your completely deregulated unstable investment banks any more money well i think there was a particular story with layman's which is that you know um the korean bank had made an offer of um, in the middle of August, and they'd been turned down uh, because the, the chief of laymen thought he could get more. Um, but I think what happened was they realized, as others have come to realize, that laymen's had liabilities way beyond their assets, that uh, they were up to the neck, if you like, in debt, um, which was all very obscure and they didn't wasn't very visible. But boy, when it came home, comes home to roost, it's very, very serious. And so there was that awareness, but there's also a slight concern because if you buy a U.S. investment and you pay for it in dollars and the dollar is, you know, is the reserve currency of the world, you effectively, every time the dollar falls, you lose money. And these governments in Asia, in Russia, in Africa, indeed, because all of governments have to hold U.S. dollars, um, have to hold U.S. assets like treasury bills as reserves because we don't, you know, gold is no longer the world's reserve. Um, we don't have anything, any other thing to act as a reserve um, for our reserve currency, as, as to act as an anchor, if you like, for the reserve currency. But as they hold this, so it shrinks in value. Now, I, I mean, I've come to this issue as someone who worked on the debt of the poorest countries. 
I worked with Nigeria, I worked with Latin American countries, uh, and if it had been possible for Nigeria to repay her debts in Nigerian Naira, that's the currency of Nigeria, as the, the Naira was devaluing, that would have been a happy situation to be in because she was effectively cutting the value of her debt repayments. But Nigeria cannot repay her debts in Naira. She must repay them in dollars. Now, when the dollar falls, that's good for people that have dollar-based debts. But if, if people have dollar-based assets and the dollar falls, they're losing money. They're losing often billions of dollars as the dollar falls. So I think that was the fear of that's the fear of some of these sovereign wealth funds, which is that they've bought stakes in American institutions and uh, the value of their stakes is you know, shrinking before their eyes and they may well want to take them out, take them, their money out. Uh, you say uh, you know, the neoliberal orthodox economists who are running the show, uh, you know, the folks of the Milton Friedman stripe, and uh, I'm very embarrassed to say that he's from the University of Chicago, just being <laughs> having anything to do with Chicago. And you know what? And uh, I'm sure Nobel is spinning in his grave that this guy got a prize for e uh, economics. But uh, you write that, uh, quote, the first and most important of the grand delusions of uh, this kind of, uh, this ilk of neoliberal economists is the belief that banks and financial institutions are illiquid, when in fact they are insolvent. Systematic insolvency is again categorically excluded from the world of orthodox e economics. It was the failure of central bank governments and finance ministers like Alastair Darling and Hank Paulson to acknowledge insolvency in the summer and autumn of 2007 that has prolonged and deepened the crisis. It is the failure to recognize insolvency, insolvency now that lies behind the apparently endless and ineffective flow of taxpayer-backed liquidity from central banks. So are you saying they're out of money, the debts owed them do not come close to the money that they need, that the, are banks bankrupt? Well, that's why they're failing. That's why we've had the failure of the biggest bank in U.S. history this last week. They wouldn't be failing if they had enough money to pay their debts and their commitments. Um, so, yes, they're insolvent. Now, the thing is that, you know, there are ways in which you can deal with insolvency and, and, and a central bank could manage the process to make it orderly. Because we don't want, you know, just as we don't want car companies just to go bankrupt and make their workers unemployed and to create an economic mess, we also don't want banks to break down in that way. We want an orderly process. But if we do not even think they are insolvent, then it's not possible to manage an orderly restructuring of, of financial institutions. And that's been the flaw in the analysis of these economists. Um, I have to say, uh, Chuck, that you know, we do need to realize that, that our leaders don't fully understand what's going on here. And that should give us more confidence to try and understand it ourselves. And yes, you know, by refusing to acknowledge that these banks had... And the trouble is also that it was hard for the central banks to spot insolvency because it was very carefully hidden. Um, you know, we know about, for example, credit default swaps, which are a form of insurance that's been taken out against the risk of um, a bank's uh, creditor or against the risk of a loan defaulting, a borrower defaulting on a loan. The problem was this system of insurance was set up to avoid regulation. 
That's why they're called credit default swaps. They're not swaps at all. They should have been called credit default insurance. But if they'd been called credit default insurance, then they would have had to come under the regulatory radar. So what happened was this whole shadow banking system evolved, which includes credit default swaps, which we're told by the International Derivatives Association amount now to something like $62 trillion. But the, but the central bank governors weren't able to see this stuff precisely because it was in the shadow banking system. It was hidden from them, sometimes deliberately, sometimes not so deliberately, um, uh, sometimes you know, innocently. So, but the fact was, it, and still remains, that you know, like as Warren Buffett has argued, you know, we just don't know because these guys have hidden the stuff away. But it is becoming more apparent. It is becoming more transparent, and as it becomes more transparent, so we recognise these banks are just insolvent and they fail. Uh, just two more questions for you, Anne. Uh, this week, this did not get a lot of play here in the U.S. press and the U.S. media. Uh, National Public Radio, I understand they uh, covered this, but this really didn't get a lot of uh, press here in the United States, and that is the annual meeting at the U.N. Uh, world leaders come in once a year and they make speeches, and you know, in the past it's been this, you know, the Bush administration and the yeah. and U.S. economists telling people, you got to have a free market, you got to have complete lack of regulation, you know, and being very arrogant about it. And this week you see U.N. Secretary Ban Ki-moon uh, chastising the United States for this. Mark Malik Brown, a British cabinet uh, minister and former senior United Nations official, uh, said that those speaking out against the Bush administration, quote, are all remembering the very hard, unforgiving advice that they got from American financial institutions yeah. to deflate your economy, let your yeah. banks go to the wall. There is yeah. a resentment at what they would see as a further evidence of double standards. You got Absolutely. Angela Merkel, Germany's chancellor, is saying we you know we did what we were supposed to do we adopted a decent eu regulation on yeah. the national statute banks but when it came to the uh, to uh, when it came to it the americans said that's not for us and yeah. so not only has the bush administration it seems to me undermined what leadership the united states may have had in human rights and democracy eight ten years ago even though you know, argue, arguable, arguably it was failing already. We've lost our, it seems to me that we're losing our economic leadership as well. But more importantly, you know, d does this mean that finally, because uh, Naomi Klein has argued in The Guardian that this isn't the case, but does this mean that finally we may be seeing an end to the knee-jerk support for a free market ideology? I think so. I think, you know, we're going to, and, you know, the free market is, are, are railing against this, but we're going to see a rise in what will not be very good protectionism. And, you know, I think, can I just make one other point, which is that I'm not against the market, and I'm particularly not against the market in goods and services. What I'm against is a totally unregulated free market in money, um, because money is not like potatoes or tomatoes or oil or diamonds. It is not something that ever can be scarce because it's a social construct. It's something that we as human beings make. It's not something we dig out from the ground, and it's not something that grows on trees. So the market in, for example, uh, oil or in, um, in, in, in agricultural goods um, could function quite healthily if the market in money was regulated properly and, 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 and effectively. 
And I think we have to make the distinction between those two kinds of markets. I'm not a free marketeer either when it comes, I mean, if you look at total free market, there would be absolutely no regulation. I believe, for example, I want the way in which our food is manufactured and distributed carefully regulated because I don't want food poisoning and I don't want the kind of contamination that we are seeing in China right now, little babies being poisoned by melamine. So, you know, we do want regulation of markets. But but for me, the market is what's lived with us for, 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 for millennia, actually. And we'll go on living with us. But the market in money is a different animal altogether because money is not a commodity. It's not like goods and services. So, yeah, and I think that, that unless, you know, my, my fear is that we're going to get a massive backlash against all kinds of markets. And some of this backlash will be bad. It will be bad for us. It will be bad for the world. But it will be the result of the fact that people will lash out furiously, angrily, protectively against, you know, the coming uh, failure of the global economy. And that's because, you know, we've constructed an economy which was doomed for failure. If we had made, managed it better, if we'd regulated it better, if we'd moderated it more effectively, we would not have a backlash. We would not have failure. We would not have all of these things. So, you know, there's, there's going to be there's going to be problems. But I have to say... <laughs> The Greenspan and his friends are fighting their corner. They are still trying to uphold this ideology. Today, the Financial Times has a very big and long editorial on the virtue of free markets, and they mix the market in money up with the market in goods and services. They treat them both as the same. So that there is a big fight back, and uh, you know we need to engage in that, yeah. if you like, that intellectual debate. And... and persuade them of their wrong analysis and their wrong thinking. And just one more question for you. Uh, first of all, check out Anne's blog at detonation.org.com, dot com, right? Dot, dot org. Dot org. -N. And secondly, both of her articles, which we at that were at uh, opendemocracy.net this week, that we have linked at the front page of our website, uh, The Coming First World Debt Crisis, and uh, she, that was the name of her book. Uh, the two articles were The Week That Changed Everything in America's Financial Meltdown, Lessons and Prospects. Uh, she gives what she believes is the cure for our financial crisis. And so that's I'm just trying to tease people to go. Go, go check out your articles to make sure they – because these these two articles really blew me away, and this is just amazing work. i got one last question for you. Uh, it's what we call our question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or maybe the answer is just something that's far too hellish. Uh, you quote Warren Buffett predicting in March 2005 that by 2015, the net ownership of the U.S. by outsiders would amount to $11 trillion. Buffett wrote, quote, Americans would chafe at the idea of perpetually paying tribute to their creditors and owners abroad. A country that is now aspiring to an ownership society will not find happiness in, and I'll use hyperbole here for emphasis, a sharecropper society. You conclude in the article America's Financial meltdown lessons and prospects that Buffett was and is right. The collapse of banks and investment funds and of the international financial system, a consequence of the unpardonable folly of the powerful, is serious and dangerous enough. But what is even more to be feared is the emergence of a sharecropper society, angry at its downfall. Thus will America's problem become the world's. Are you suggesting then that an angry America 
may lash out, turn this anger, bolstered by, you know, unfortunately our military might on the world, as it were, and maybe even threaten global security? I'm saying that it's going to be, there's going to be some very, very harsh experiences ahead for Americans. Unemployment is already high, in my view. Foreclosures are already extraordinarily high. Um, there are, my understanding is that it's getting close to, uh, I, I can't remember the numbers, but think of all the families. I think it's more than a million families. Think of the families losing their homes. Now, this is going to breed a lot of grievance and a lot of anger and a lot of bad, you know, quite rightly, um, a, a lot of real pain. In those circumstances, when people uh, are, are, have received this kind of harsh treatment, they tend to lash out. And that's the thing that we must all fear, um, because it it needs to be managed so that that does not happen. It needs to be managed so that we can stabilize the economy. And um, and we can and, and I, personally, I think that we should have a ban on, on all home evictions. I think we should have a jubilee. We should cancel debts. We should say, look, the, the circumstances on which these debts were incurred were unfair and unreasonable. Let's write them off and let's start again. Let's give everybody a clean slate and let's start again. I fear that our law that our well, not so much our lawmakers, but our thinkers and our our central bankers do not have the vision to do that, do not have the courage to do that, and therefore it's going to be messy and horrible. And in those circumstances, people do, do not on the whole behave well. Now, I'm quoting Warren Buffett there because Warren Buffett predicted some time ago that Britain, uh, that the United States and Britain, I may say, is very in a very similar position, was relying for its living standards on borrowing from abroad. And... Uh, those debts will have to be repaid. And I mean, in repaying those debts, uh, that will require cut in living stands ultimately. And Warren Buffett was uh, predicting that that would not be something that Americans would take lying down. And I wouldn't be surprised. After all, Americans, you know, have lived well over these last couple of decades. They feel that they're part of a powerful nation. And when nations lose that status in the world, um, there's a very uncomfortable feeling about. And that is all I'm saying. I'm saying we need to be aware of that. And we need, therefore, to try and manage it so that there isn't this feeling of, uh, of humiliation, if you like, yeah. which will drive all kinds of, um, in my view, often irrational actions. And it's been a pleasure, an honor to have you on the show. This, the writing that you are doing on this is spectacular. Everybody's got to read this stuff. This is just, this blew me away. It's so good to hear a different perspective that we're definitely not getting here in the U.S. media. Thanks so much for being on our show this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, certainly, Anne. Uh, live from Suffolk, England, that was Anne Pettifor. Check out her website again, detonation.org. That's D E B T. O-N-A-T-I-O-N. Detonation like a bomb, except you put a B in there like the money you owe. Det Detonation.org. And Pettifor live from Suffolk, England. Truck spoke with Ann Pettifor in September of 2008. Hi, it's producer Alex, and you're listening to a four-hour show all about the 2008 financial crisis. Next, we're going to hear from James Steele in October of 2009.
All right, on the line with us right now is James Steele. He co-wrote the Vanity Fair article, Good Billions After Bad, with his investigative reporting partner, Donald L. Barlett, or Barlet. Uh, Steele and Barlett are the only investigative journalism team to have won two Pulitzers and two National Magazine Awards. They're both editors-at-large for Time Magazine, contributing editors at Vanity Fair. Their most recent book is 2004's Critical Condition, How Healthcare in America Became Big Business and Bad Medicine. We have a direct link to their webpage where you can purchase their book at the front page of our website as well. Uh, Good morning, uh, Jim. We really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. Nice to be with you, Chuck. Uh, This is, and I'm I'm really glad that somebody is still writing about this. I was kind of amazed at how quickly the, uh, it seems that America's kind of moved on, or just moves on beyond any news cycle, let alone this one that's kind of complicated. One of the things that I noticed during the whole SNL scandal back in the 80s, was a lot of people just kind of got bored with it because it was over their head, because it was out of their reach and and out of their power. It, it wasn't like I would be able to do anything personally to stop the SNL collapse. And I think people have this disconnect from this story as well. Do you think people are moving on, are kind of washing their hands and forgetting about this aspect, the financial aspect of the uh, recession that we're going through, these kind of bailouts. Do you you think that people are moving on and forgetting about how important these things are and continue to be? Well, I think there's always a certain amount of powerlessness that people feel over these giant issues. I mean, even at the time they're unfolding, which was uh, basically a year ago, around that time, but I'll tell you, just based on the reaction we've had so far to this piece, uh, I would say a lot of people have not moved on. And I think, you know, people are really concerned about the way the government does certain things. And this particular program was a particularly outrageous one when you look back on it. I mean, one of the defenders of it say, look, we had this financial crisis. People had to do these things. They had to throw money in there, anything to keep the system going. But as we try to make the point in our story, beyond just the fact that most of this was not spent in the way that uh, people thought it was, it's a very dangerous precedent to throw, you know, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars out there with basically no accountability, with not even a particularly well-thought-out plan as to what it's going to do. So we we found that just based on the reaction we've gotten to it, there's still a lot of people concerned about that, worried about that, and and are particularly concerned about the precedent it's, it establishes. You know, you uh, have this wonderful opening to the article talking about the old cash room in the uh, Department of the Treasury, where this was a place where you could actually see the government's business being done in public uh, between America's banks and between the uh, president and between the government. You would see, uh, you know, bundles of cash. You'd see gold. You'd see silver. You'd see paper transactions. You'd see all of the government's business being done out and open in the public. Now, I'm sure, though, that at that time there was still some corruption. There was still some lack of transparency. But certainly there was more transparency, at least in this uh, symbolic way, at the very least, uh, compared to what we have today. How much uh, transparency has been lost? How much control have we lost over our economy, not simply because of the uh, different cultures that have been embraced by Washington, but also because of technologies, because of computerization, because of financialization. How much control have we, how much control, how much transparency have we really lost when it comes to our economy? Because, you know, this new Michael Moore movie, uh, Capitalism, A Love Story, he talks about how he's not necessarily against capitalism, but what he's for is democratic participation within, within our economy. So how much control have we lost? How much transparency have we lost? 
I think we've lost a lot of control. I mean, uh, the average person really feels, uh, as we talked about a minute ago, very powerless about some of these big issues. But even beyond them, uh, what struck us about this particular story with TARP was even uh, the governmental units that were to sort of oversee TARP. There's a special inspector general of the Treasury Department that is solely devoted to monitoring TARP. Uh, There's the Government Accountability Office, which is that arm of Congress that that is nonpartisan, that looks over all kinds of transactions from health to finance and so forth. And then on top of that, uh, the, the Congressional Oversight Panel uh, that was chartered by, uh, particularly uh, on the House side, the House Gover- Government Affairs Committee, to follow this particular issue to see how the money was spent. All of these things were, were looking at TARP as best they could. But what struck all of them and what struck us is that in those first few months, those first three months, there was absolutely no accountability by Treasury as to where this money was going. And in not only no accountability, but when these units, uh, which had a certain amount of power and authority and so forth, asked Treasury, will you ask the banks uh, what they're doing with this money? Basically, Treasury said uh, no, with the exception of Citigroup and uh, Bank of America, uh, which did file some some reports on where it went. Basically, Treasury said, no, it's just kind of going into the general treasury of these banks, and it's going to help us restore our economy, blah, 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 et cetera. No follow-up, and not even the pretense of following up. So that, that to us, was a, was a very, very dangerous precedent. And I know what the defenders of this will say. They'll say we were in a period of tremendous crisis. You know, we had to do these things. But... There was no doubt there was a financial crisis. Nobody disputes that. But it is also true that it's just not a good precedent to send this kind of money out, taxpayer money, with nobody following it and nobody saying where it's going to go. So I think we have lost a lot of transparency. And we saw in the tail end of the Bush administration, there really wasn't even much concern about that issue. Uh, They really didn't care. And that's, I think, one of the prices we paid for this particular kind of program. And I think that's what bothered us most about this. Not only did these, was there no rhyme or reason to the way this thing uh, was administered and who was to get the money and who wasn't to get the money, but they honestly didn't even seem to care there toward the tail end of the year. And I think that's one of the dangerous things when you have in a lame duck administration, especially one that even throughout its entire uh, two-term history has not shown a particular uh, uh, propensity for transparency. Yeah, and I agree with you. Obviously, there was an economic emergency. Something needed to be done. Something needed. Right. It, this needed to be addressed. But I'm. I don't know how much of this was guided by economics. How much of this was guided by what's best for the economy of the nation as a whole, or how much of this was a political emergency? Because this is happening just months before, just weeks before a presidential election. You know, I wonder if this had happened in October two thousand and seven. If this had not. If it would not have been rushed through as much as it was in in what eventually did happen. And I also wonder how much of this is ideologically driven. The idea that Paulson or these people who are, you know, anti-regulation, who are not the biggest fans of oversight, who are, uh, you know, the typical uh, conservative uh, economic ideologue. So how much do you think this is driven by not an, an economic emergency, but a, a political emergency or driven ideologically? in the way it was eventually handled, the tarp uh, handing out of money? Well, I think I think ideologically in the sense that uh, what Paulson and crew really wanted to do in part, and others have said this, not just us, 
they really did want to take care of Wall Street in many ways. Because in addition to those two big banks, which were so intertwined with the market and so forth, the biggest recipient of TARP money was AIG, the big insurer. And the reason they needed help is because they had covered the bets of all of these banks and Goldman Sachs and all of these big players on Wall Street who had been dabbling in all of these exotic uh, financial instruments, uh, the, the bundled mortgages and all of these things, credit default swaps, all of those words that make the average person's mind just glaze over. AIG had insured those companies against those bad bets. So this money very much was important to them to take care of that. So as much as anything, uh, when you talk about ideology, I mean, the whole position of somebody like Paulson and the whole crew that was in Treasury at the time was to do anything possible to prop up Wall Street because they felt that would be good for the country, but it would also be more than anything good for Wall Street. So I think that was the strongest ideological thing. The, the thing that's ironic to us when we got into this, can you imagine the reaction on the conservative side if this whole bailout, this massive intrusion into the market had been led by Democrats? I mean, we, we think of that all the time. I mean, the, the cries that would have gone up about got to let the free market work, you've got to let it play itself out. But they didn't let that happen here. They saved AIG rather than letting it go into bankruptcy, which would be the way for many institutions to play out the bad bets they'd had. And instead of that, they had this unprecedented intrusion into the market, which went against basically their their long-term philosophy. But more than anything, it was driven by self-interest of those institutions they wanted to protect on the street. You know, I, I'm I'm glad that you brought up the if, if this was done by uh, Democrats rather than Republicans. You know, Fox News has been able to rally and uh, organize tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people uh, to rally against big government, big taxes, taking away our country, giving it to Wall Street, government interference, big tax giveaways, the special interests. But TARP, uh, as you write, quote, is the largest single financial intervention by Treasury into the banking system in U.S. history. And it all happened during the Bush administration, which the vast majority of the Tea Party uh, people supported. And I didn't see them taking to the streets, though, when there was the original three page bailout that Henry Paulson had suggested. And then there was a huge turnout from the public as far as sending letters and contacting their congressmen and their senators and saying, don't pass that three-page version. Look over this for a little while. So there was a little bit of blowback, but there wasn't any organization There wasn't any organization that was pointed at the administration. So in light of what you've learned about TARP during your investigative reporting, what do you make of these tea parties? Because I'm always curious about people who have a far better understanding of the context within which these kind of activities take place. I'm always curious as to what how how they view it because I, there's something clearly there's something very wrong with these tea parties in the way that they are framing the argument. But uh, as somebody who is a student of TARP, uh, how what do you make of these tea parties? I think they're part of uh, sort of that tradition in that part of the political spectrum where you, just as you mentioned a minute ago, they're opposed to these big generalities, big government. They don't like regulations. They like low taxes. I mean, these are almost like religious phrases that keep being repeated over and over again. The irony with TARP is that while some people are out there protesting big government right now, as we were saying, the single biggest intrusion has really come under the, the Republican watch 
the party that supposedly is opposed to all of these things. I mean, one of the ironies of this and one of the difficulties the Obama administration's had is that TARP continues to go on. The program is in place, and they've continued to um, buy stock in banks and things of that sort. I mean, in terms of real dollars, the bulk of that money went out uh, in, in the, the, those closing months of the Bush administration. Uh, the 239 or $50 billion at the time, most of the banks were certainly helped then, though they've continued to, Treasury since has continued to help. But uh, So that was the greatest example, the greatest demonstration of big government and the greatest perhaps uh, questionable use of tax money. And yet all of that is forgotten now by these folks in the Tea Parties who are suggesting that this is somehow Obama's program. I mean, he's into the tail end of, of, of administering this thing because it, it's continued to go on. The money's still out there. You've got to have somebody collect the interest if a bank wants to. If a bank's going to pay the interest on the stock that uh, was purchased by the government. But you know, they're not the ones who created this program. They've inherited it. But I think that's typical of this country. You you have these lines drawn, and I think the the right wing in this country is in. Uh, tremendous disarray on a lot of its basic issues, and the, the, but and as a result of that, they're continuing to go back to the well uh, that has served them in the past. But just from my observation, as a just as a citizen, not particularly a political reporter, uh, I don't think it's serving them very well. Now. I think people are tired of some of these things, and just because some of the media gave a lot of attention to those boisterous early town hall meetings in healthcare, it created the misguided impression that this was a huge issue out there. Subsequent polls have shown, like just on healthcare alone, that you know the bulk of the population believes we have to do something there. So it's like, it's like so many tough issues in this country where if somebody is quite vocal, quite dramatic, that squeaky wheel uh, gets the attention of the media, and it may create the notion that this is a real big issue. But I honestly don't think it will. I mean, any given time, you're going to have a third of the population saying, I'm against big government, I'm against taxes, uh, tax increases, on down the line, no matter what the situation is. But I do not think that represents uh, the majority of the country right now. You know, it's funny how the media gets attracted to, as you were calling it, uh, the squeaky wheel, instead of trying to uh, remind people, uh, well, instead of trying to Further people's education about certain issues uh, by giving people more and more context as it goes along. I understand as the story is breaking, it's hard to give everybody all of the context that is necessary to understand that breaking story. But as time moves on and as that story develops, you would think that that context would build up and build up so people could understand an issue better. But instead, instead they just seem to uh, chase the squeaky wheel. I, I, I know. And uh, one of the things that uh, – <clears throat> excuse me drove me crazy when I saw some of the early coverage on uh, the health care debate mm-hmm. was, um, and, and you, you were kind enough to begin in the program to mention that Don and I had actually written a book on health care. Uh, I saw these public meetings where I'd see these dramatic quotes on the evening news about some guy getting up and screaming, I don't want government in my health care. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, yeah, what planet have you been living on? Right. I mean, everybody's 65 and over, and that's quite a few people. The government has been involved in health care since 1965 and and actually doing a pretty good job under the Medicare program in terms of uh, 
you know, their administrative costs. Is it perfect? No. There isn't a health care plan anywhere in the world that's perfect. But it has worked uh, fairly successfully for millions and millions of people. So what are these people talking about other than this generality that they go back to each time uh, to criticize something when it's a political issue with them? We're speaking with Jim Steele. He he co-wrote the Vanity Fair article, Good Billions After Bad, with his investigative reporting partner, uh, Donald Barlett. Uh, Steele and Barlett are the only investigative journalism team to have won two Pulitzers and two National Magazine Awards. They're both editors at large for Time Magazine and contributing editors at Vanity Fair. We have the article directly linked at the front page of our website. You know, one of the things I kept thinking of when I was reading your article was, um, <laughs> I hate to put it this way, was almost like in a conspiracy theory way. It seemed like what happened with this TARP bailout, and granted the timing was perfect for it, was the Bush administration uh, with only a couple of months left in its administration, a lame duck uh, presidency, uh, all their friends cash in and run out of Washington with money. Or you could say it's all of Henry Paulson's friends at Goldman Sachs. Or you could say it's just all the people at the uh, on Wall Street uh, taking their one last dig in in case there are potential more regulations, financial regulations under the Obama administration. It's almost like people who were loading up with guns and bullets leading up to uh, President Obama taking power because or becoming president of the United States because they were fearing that there was going to be more controls on uh, their guns, which there hasn't been any sign that that's going to be the case either. Now, you write that uh, there wasn't even anyone within the uh, TARP office to keep track of the money as it was being dispersed. TARP gave that job, along with a $20 million fee to a private contractor, Bank of New York Mellon, which also happened to be one of the big nine, another one of the big nine banks that uh, were deemed too, uh, too big to fail. Now, there seems to be so many conflicts of interest in the TARP uh, disbursement in the entire financial bailout, being that this was approved by a majority Democratic House and Senate and approved and orchestrated by a Republican White House and Treasury Department. What do things like uh, one of the big nine, one of the two big to fail banks overseeing how the bailout money, some of which they would receive, was being distributed, a bailout conceived of by a guy who had just left being a CEO of another bailout receiving company, that's Paulson leaving Goldman Sachs, a guy who had put in charge of the bailout another colleague from the same bailout receiving bank, and does this uh, say about the, what does this say about the state of either the Bush administration in its waning months, the Republican Party, or even the, the nature of just, you know, uh, the way that business is being done across the aisle on both Democratic and Republican sides. It was the American way there at the end of that administration. No, you're absolutely right. Your description of this, and and then I would add to the ones you just you just said uh, by bailing out AIG, the biggest recipient of TARP, uh, the largest single uh, reimbursement there indirectly went to Goldman Sachs. So it's another benefit to Goldman Sachs. Much has been made of the fact that some of these big banks, like Goldman, have repaid the government their TARP money. But what is overlooked in this is that uh, AIG has not repaid any of its money, some of which went to Goldman Sachs. So, so again, I mean, it, and this is what's so complex about this thing, why it was in particular challenged to unravel it. But I'll, I'll tell you, there, there's never, there have been very few uh, programs that lent themselves more to the conspiracy theory than this one, because when you look at this, and you look at these big banks that were called in and Paulson said, look, you're going to take the money whether you need it or not, back in October of last year. 
The fact is there are only two or three of these institutions that really were in weak shape. Uh, but to create the notion, anyway, that you had this system-wide problem, perhaps uh, he insisted that they all take this money. And then after that, Treasury went out, went to other banks around the country, both big and small, and basically forced some banks to take the money. I mean, I, I talked to a banker out in Oregon who's in the story. Uh, somebody from Treasury called him and said, uh, How's your bank? And they said, it's fine. Our capital reserves are okay. We don't have any bad mortgages, almost no toxic assets. It's a tough time, but we're really doing okay, and thanks for calling. Well, the next day, the same guy calls back and says, the secretary wants your application, the TARP program, on his desk by 5 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So the guy's thinking, wow. (laughs) And he's presented to him like, this would be the patriotic thing to do to let us buy stock in your bank. But here's where the conspiracy theory is, and not without some reason. Why was all of this going on? And some people make the point that while you only had a handful of institutions that really needed help, if you create this notion that there's this broad-based need and you shell all that money out there, then you kind of suggest it's a system-wide problem, and then people forget that it really was only to help two or three or four main players on Wall Street. So there's tremendous fodder here for um, for the whole conspiracy thing. I don't think, and we make this point in the story, we don't think anybody's totally going to know the complete story on this for some time, because it's so complicated, it's so complex. We just took a shot at it to look at these immediate transactions that went on late last year, see where the money went, um, see how well the alleged objectives of the program were met. And we came to the conclusion there was no design at all. Yeah. And that people who got it, some needed it, some didn't. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, this, as much as anything, was just a, a move by Paulson and crew to, to take care of their friends. You know, this is the thing that I don't really get about it. it it's, the, I guess, the PR angle of it. I guess not that I don't get it, but um, they force these small banks that are doing well you're going to take this money if you like it or not. They even uh, told the big banks you're going to take this money if you like it or not. But uh, right. they even told small banks that we're doing fine, that didn't need money. They even convinced them, you know, this you're going to do this for patriotic reasons. You're going to help out your fellow citizen by taking this money. It's going to be good for the economy. It's going to be good for America. And so they take on this money. But they're doing it because they the reason they're giving money to people who don't even need the money is for public relations reasons. They don't want people to think that it's only the big banks that are getting exactly. the money, that exactly. everybody's getting the money. But this, exactly. And this all comes down to perception versus reality. It does, as you're pointing out, it does give the perception that this is a system-wide problem, that there's a problem maybe even with capitalism. Instead of saying there's just a problem with these four or nine major banks, however many, the, the two big-to-fill banks, the ones that have the most connections, the ones that have the most money, the ones that have the most connections on Wall Street and uh, in Washington. And so it comes back again to trying to train, change the perception of this being failed big banks into a systemic problem, trying to make right. that the new perception. So, Ab- Absolutely. So um, in that sense, did the TARP, Work did it work as a P, in a PR sense to make people think a this is a system wide problem b it's a problem that we have to address and if we don't address everything's going to fail and c to show investors that we actually do have faith in our banking system. 
Well, A, on, on terms of the PR ramifications, I think it worked in that sense, in terms of creating the, the, the motion that we're, we're doing all of these things out there. In terms of one of its most important stated purposes, though, which was to free up credit, there's no evidence that that worked at all. I mean, we talked to a number of banks that uh, sold stock to Treasury during this whole period, and I'll never forget one banker, and he said, don't ever quote me on this, but he said, uh, yeah, uh, we sold stock to Treasury, and we got a couple hundred million dollars, but it had absolutely no effect on our lending at all because we just didn't have people coming in who wanted to borrow money. Other banks used this money to buy other banks. Others used it. Others just basically put it in uh, in their in their own treasuries, pumped up their balance sheets. But there's no evidence at all that it really thawed. Uh, the credit freeze that was out there, and then then you had some banks who got it that immediately raised substantially their credit card rates. So it has the, the direct opposite effect of what it was supposed to do. Uh, one of those was was Capital One, the big credit card company and bank. I mean, here's this huge, you know, one of the largest credit card issuers in the country. They get a, a, a huge amount from TARP, and shortly thereafter increase the rates in many cases, to long-time cardholders who've been with them for years and years and years. That doesn't sound like a very wise way to, to free up credit. So I think on a PR standpoint, it created the notion that, you know, this is a broader problem. But in terms of its operational effectiveness and what it achieved, um, basically, it, did, it didn't do any of that. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but I just wanted you to follow up on, on this a little bit. You write that based on the uh, reluctance of many banks to take the TARP money in the first place and the swiftness with which other banks have repaid TARP funds, funds, the main conclusion to be drawn is that relatively few were actually endangered. So are you saying then that the financial collapse uh, was either overhyped or over-exaggerated by the media itself? And did did they fall for... Again, did they fall for a public relations campaign that was being driven by other behind-the-scenes causes? Well, there there was a crisis, and we make that point in the story, and we don't dispute that. So there is a crisis out there. The question is, how do you deal with it? How do you handle it? And the point we tried to make, yeah, have there been some weak banks that have failed or uh, are in trouble? There's no doubt about it. And we've seen the recent stories on the FDIC. But the fact is... There was a mechanism already in place to deal with those weak banks, and it's called the FDIC. And if they ran too low on their reserves, they could certainly have gone back to Congress, perhaps, even though they don't normally get an appropriation. It's something supported by the banks themselves. But the fact is, there was a mechanism there to deal with whatever weak banks came along. There was not the need for this kind of sort of massive acquisition by, by Treasury. Uh, many banks have paid this back, as you were just pointing out. Uh, a lot haven't, and we don't know down the road, you know, how much of a liability is going to be out there for the taxpayer. That's something we may not know really for really two or three or four years once the final tally of this thing is is added up. But again, uh, it's the precedent of like putting a gun to Congress's head, pass this bill, and then basically putting a gun to the head of all of these bankers, saying, "Look, take this money." trying to create the image that this is doing the job, and then not even caring where the money goes. Elizabeth Warren, who headed the Congressional Oversight Panel, she had a great quote in one congressional hearing about this thing. She was looking at 
that the way Treasury did this, the way they sent the money out, the way they bought stock, and they said, she said, there isn't a bank in the there isn't a bank in the country that would loan money that would send out money to the circumstances that uh, Treasury did under this program. So that's a pretty damning criticism. You know, have, have there been any changes as far as oversight is concerned? Has there been any changes uh, to how this money is being dispersed? Has there been any changes within the uh, regulatory culture of uh, the financial markets uh, or even within the culture on uh, Capitol Hill, within Congress, within the Senate? Have you seen any signs of changes from the mentality that led us to TARP and TARP being approved of by a Democratic Party-controlled House and Senate, even though it was during a Republican president? Well, I think uh, since Obama took over, uh, some of the regular, not not just the regulars, but some of the the oversight bodies, from the Inspector General for the program and within Treasury, uh, the Government Accountability Office, and the Congressional Oversight Panel I just mentioned, uh, all of them apparently are finding Treasury more responsive now than they were uh, leading up to Obama taking over. Uh, that, in some cases, is more Treasury itself being responsive, because a lot of the same people are all there. There hasn't been that much of a change in the actual manning of a lot of these offices other than at the very top. So that is certainly a little encouraging there. But I think I think it's one of the dangers of our system. I think if a crisis is perceived, uh, as Paulson and crew, for whatever reason, perceived a certain kind of thing, they went to Congress and basically said, boy, you've got to enact this emergency economic package, which is TARP, including TARP, or we're talking about financial uh, Armageddon out there. I think the possibility of an administration, whether it's Democratic or Republican, going to Congress and scaring the hell out of people is always there. And you're not going to find any Congress uh, that's going to be comfortable saying no under those circumstances. And that may get back to a point you made earlier, which is that if this had happened at some other point, other than just the, the waning days of a lame duck administration, maybe Congress could have stepped back a little bit and been a little bit more reflective and tried to examine some of these claims to see how valid they were, and have said things like, well, don't we have things in place that can deal with this, like FDIC, uh, the Federal Reserve, et cetera? Do we really have to concoct an entirely different program? And then it's further compounded, once they devise this program, Paulson, within days, says, okay, I'm not going to buy the bad mortgages. I'm just going to buy bank or stock in healthy banks. But half the banks that they bought stock in weren't healthy. And half the programs they bankrolled were very, very questionable programs in some way that had nothing to do with really, truly freeing up credit in this economy. And not only that, as you point out in your article, uh, they were actually funding banks that had a history of very hinky practices. There are, Absolutely. Uh, banks that were doing net well. Uh, like people here in Chicago might know them as payday loans, but the same kind of things with your uh, tax return kind of loans, you know, right. where, where you get that fronted to you a few months in advance, and then the interest rate on it is incredible. The accountants that these loan uh, sharks get to have uh, fill out your taxes don't do a very good job at it, so it might even be more of a penalty down the road. So they were even supporting uh, people who had really hinky practices. Would any of this, in your opinion, Jim, and I know this is uh, it might be a little bit out of your realm of expertise, but I'm doubting it from reading your work, 
would any of this have happened if we had real campaign finance reform? And what I mean by that, because we were just having a, a lobbyist the other day on our show from uh, Public Citizen who was saying, yes, McCain-Feingold is a good thing to have. It's better than nothing. Uh, there is a kind of a scare that people might think that, well, we've already fixed campaign finance reforms. There's nothing else that we have to do about it or we've done as much as we can possibly do. Uh, uh, but uh, this guest, Craig Holman, told us that, well, you know, um, it might not be the best thing, but it's what we've got. It's better than nothing. And the only way you can have real campaign finance reform is having public financing of campaigns. Uh, would have this have happened? Would have the TARP situation have occurred? If we had real campaign finance reform, well, that's that's a really good question, and uh, I'm not sure I could venture to go. I would like, I would hope it wouldn't. Uh, you never can underestimate the creativity of the forces who uh, descend on Washington, and how, when blocked on one street, they somehow go down another and come around behind, like the old Maginot Line in World War II. So, you really. I, I would like to, and, and, and under no circumstances would true campaign finance reform be a bad thing. I mean, Don and I have been writing about the influence of money in politics for decades, all the way back to a, a really a major series back in the 80s that talked about, that showed how basically contributions were made to get special provisions in tax legislation, in some cases exempting individuals from tax provisions that everybody else is going to have to to abide by. So we understand this whole thing very well. And we do need that. We need that massive uh, campaign finance reform, much, much beyond McCain-Feingold, because you're seeing the, the consequences of the lack of that in many ways right now in the whole health care debate. I mean, this is, so much of this is uh, driving a lot of the decisions that are being made, which are what I think the public as a whole wants is not being reflected in the bill, the bill certainly in the Senate side that's coming coming out of Congress. So those bills, more than anything, reflect the power of the insurance industry and the way they want to continue to call the shots on health care in this country. So if we had that, we would be certainly a step closer to where we need to be. Um, and hopefully we wouldn't have something like this. Did uh, Henry Paulson, the Treasury Secretary under the last Bush administration, uh, by giving out, uh, well, $700 billion in TARP money, 250 actually going out during his watch, um, was he able to do what Ronald Reagan always wanted to do, which was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, make government so small that you can drown it in a bathtub, make federal government so small you can drown it in a bathtub. Was Henry Paulson able to do that? With TARP, uh, able to do something that the Reagan administration only dreamed of. Well, there's no doubt that this continuing sort of hollowing out of government continues to to, to take place, and uh, and and by and I think what you saw with TARP was rather than a true you know, any kind of an oversight bureaucracy, they just basically sent the money out, so you really had no follow up. You had nobody overseeing the process. Uh, you had none of those uh, pesky regulations <laughs> that uh, Reagan should certainly used to rail against. So in that sense, it uh, it was a very effective program for him. One last question for you. We've been, sure. we've been speaking with uh, 
uh, let me get all my notes together. I want to make sure I give you give out all of your credentials here. Jim Steele co-wrote the Vanity Fair article, Good Billions After ba- Bad, with his investigative reporting partner, Donald L. Barlett. Steele and Barlett are the only investigative journalism team to have won two Pulitzers and two National Magazine Awards. They are both editors at large for Time Magazine and contributing editors to Vanity Fair. Their most recent book is 2004's Critical Condition, How Healthcare in America Became Big Business and Bad Medicine. We have direct link to their website where you can purchase the book directly from them at the front page of our website. Jim, we have one last question for you, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Uh, Sometimes I just try to make them difficult, and I I don't think that this, I don't know, I'm I'm really curious how you're going to respond to this. Uh, We hear of the military-industrial complex and how it profited off the Iraq War. Companies like Halliburton have been demonized. Uh, but how does that compare to what you might call the financial industrial complex? Eisenhower's early draft uh, of his um, his farewell speech didn't have it as the military industrial complex. It was the military congressional industrial complex. So maybe that's the best way to frame the question. How would you compare the impact, the presence of the financial congressional industrial complex to that of the military congressional industrial complex? Fascinating question, and uh, <clears throat> it's much larger and much more powerful in many ways than the military-industrial complex. And you just look at uh, money spent on lobbying. If you walk down the street and ask the average person who spends more in Washington lobbying Congress, uh, defense contractors, or um, the healthcare industry, I, I would venture to guess the bulk of people would say defense contractors, not even close. Health and healthcare industry, the amount of money spent on lobbying and therefore contributions, much greater. And right up there with them, uh, actually exceeding them, if I'm not mistaken, is the the whole financial industry. And it's been, you know, and healthcare in a way is sort of part of that financial industry because those are insurance companies. That's money. So all of that, much, much more powerful in terms of the money they spend in the defense industry. What's happened with defense is that so much of that is mirrored in the companies that ring Washington, huge entities that have grown up over the last 30 or 40 years that are peopled with uh, veterans of um, the military. We wrote about one of these uh, for Vanity Fair a couple of years ago. So it's much bigger, it's much more powerful than really military and defense. And I think it's one of the things that people don't totally realize. They they know about special interests. They know how powerful they are. But they don't realize just how much money is at stake there. And why, even if you spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on lobbying, this may be extremely well-spent money if you're able to block something. Most people think of lobbying as like something uh, a special interest wants to secure. They want a special provision in a bill, and sometimes that is what it is. But the bulk of the lobbying is very often to head off uh, provisions that will be detrimental to their interests, and that in turn will save them tons of money down the line. That's exactly what you see in the healthcare debate. Rather than something they want, they're trying to stop provisions that would be not be in their best interest. So that's a huge part of the system and a huge part of the problem. And it gets back to your earlier question on campaign finance reform. Until we really have that, until we figure out a way to rein these interests in, we're still not going to see uh, true 
democratic government uh, functioning in Washington. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning, Jim. This is fantastic work, uh, as is all your amazing investigative reporting, uh, the work that you do with your partner, Don Barlett. I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. And this is really an exceptional article. I'm glad that somebody is still writing about TARP, that people are still thinking about TARP. I just hope that this doesn't become, you know, I'm not somebody who, I'm not one of those people who's like, I really want bipartisanship. I'm not for that, because as you can see, Within the economic ideology of Washington, we certainly don't want bipartisanship because they agree on a really bad economic ideology that they both seem to be embracing. Um, so I'm not somebody who is upset about partisanism. I just wish that this uh, economic debate, especially when it comes to people who are taking the streets of these Tea Party groups, um, they make this less partisan and they make they actually start having a I, I hope what will come out of this is a, a healthy and engaging debate about our economy, what it should be and where it should be going, the kind of debate that we were seeing uh, with real different choices, for instance, in the 2006 uh, Mexican election. Uh, I would really like to see that kind of open debate with two very different points of view coming from the Republican and Democratic Party. Right now, we're really not getting that. And I hope that something like TARP will be a lightning rod to make people realize what are the problems with this enmeshed uh, relationship that Wall Street and Washington have right now. Well, I think uh, I think you're right, and and hopefully uh, uh, some long lessons can be learned from this. And uh, once we move beyond the sort of ongoing, you know, economic malaise we're in, I mean, just because the stock market has shown some legs this year uh, is not translating to Main Street at all, as far as anything we see. Right, and. You've still got the unemployment. You've still got people trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And uh, that's true for probably 95% of the people. And like you were pointing out in your article, what TARP was supposed to do, loosen credit lines, and, and especially in the case of Capital One, that's an amazing story. And people should check out your article just for that one story. Uh, what happened with Capital One and how it actually lend, it, uh, led them to tightening their credit lines, even though they were getting money from the TARP to loosen their credit lines. So, Jim, I really appreciate you being on the show this morning. This is fantastic work. I'm going to keep going to your website with your partner, uh, Don, and checking out the work that you guys are up to. I really appreciate you being on our show this morning. Chuck, it was great to talk to you, and thanks so much. All right, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Chuck spoke with James Steele in October of 2009. Hi, it's Professor Alex. Uh, you're listening to a clip show documenting the 2008 and onward financial crisis. Next up, let's listen to an interview from May 2009 with Kai Wright. On the line with us is Kai Wright. Kai is a Brooklyn writer and editor and senior writer for TheRoot.com. Kai is the author of Drifting Toward Love, Black, Brown, Gay, and Coming of Age on the Streets of New York, a book published by Beacon Press. His most recent writing includes the Nation article More Mortgage Madness. Last June, Kai also wrote Mortgage Industry Bankrupts Black America for the Nation. You can find out more about Kai by going to KaiWright.com. That's K-A-I-W-I. R-I-G-H-T dot com and his book, Drifting Toward Love. We have a direct link to Beacon Press's webpage for that book so you can directly purchase it from the publisher. Good morning, Kai. Good morning. It's great to have you back on the show. I really appreciate you being back on. Glad to be here. You know, uh, before we get into uh, much of the uh, the 
content of your article. Um, one of the things that I keep hearing from the right is that, and I shouldn't just say from the right, I hear it from people from the right, from the left, from the Democrats, from the Republicans. This, this seems to be one of the critiques of the current housing collapse that we're having is that people got into mortgages that they should have never been in in the first place. And it is the fault of those people uh, who recklessly got into these loan agreements that they should have never been in. It was, they were homes that they should have never tried to afford. They uh, went beyond what their means probably was. There was there's a commercial on the radio here in Chicago for uh, some sort of debt. Coll- no, I think it's for a refinancing uh, company. And the refinancing company says, you know, it's the guy down the street from you who should have never gotten that loan. And he's destroying your value, the value of your house. People should never have gotten loans. Constantly blaming the other people. How do you feel about this kind of critique when it is in particular focused on certain aspects, demographics of the population, whether they're Hispanics, whether they're African-Americans, or just people who are poor? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most frustrating and, and even depressing parts of this this wildly frustrating and depressing uh, fiasco that we've watched over the last couple of years. Um, and it's what we addressed in the first piece on the nation this time last year. Um, you know, this this notion that it is per- the personal responsibility of the borrower that is at stake um, is something that the industry and um, its uh, Republican water carriers um, started saying at the beginning to fend off any government response. Um, it's something they said to fend off regulation in the first instance, right? That um, you know it's about the, the borrower's responsibility, not ours, um, to prevent regulation around the kind of loans they were making. And then it's something they've said ever since then, um, at each stage of of the of the discussion in Washington, to prevent uh, government from stepping in and helping borrowers. Uh, you know, I mean, so on the specifics of it, the bottom line is that, you know, study after study has shown um, that the, the reality is that they, they systematically targeted communities who had no access to credit for years, um, low financial literacy, um, and but had equity and 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 had already been uh, battered by other creditors, um, credit cards and so forth. Um, targeted them with uh, with these exotic products from subline loan, subprime loans to no doc loans to to just simply inflated appraisals of their homes. Came in in some cases, in one place in Atlanta, the 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 uh, the, the the local uh, government had to get in had, had to create a whole task force to keep brokers out of churches they were going into black church parking lots and targeting women as they came out of the church to say oh you know you're wasting your your equity in your home so they went in and they targeted communities um, specifically uh, in order to make a bunch of loans that they knew they had no business making uh, underwriting standards were completely thrown out of the window um, for the purpose of, of originating as many loans as possible that they could sell off into the securities market that they would never have to be responsible for because they were going to hold them for a week, literally, sometimes a day. Um, and, and, and so that predation was on the front end of this. Um, and they've blamed borrowers for it. There's no question that there are millions of borrowers and loans that they can't afford, they never could have afforded, they had no business with. <laughs> um, the question is, how did they get in those loans in the first place? Uh, and, 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 and I think that the evidence is pretty clear that, that a good bit of it was predation. Um, 
is is the industry is the predation industry uh if you will is that now has that been reformed is that what needs to be completely extinguished from the process uh what is the state right now of the predation industry and the predation predation industry's future when you consider what the Obama administration wants to do well that's a big question i mean it 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 seems to be pretty strong uh you know so the Obama's plan, the Obama, excuse me, the Obama administration's response uh, to the, at least the foreclosure piece of it um, was, we heard in February, a plan to um, that had two sides. It had carrots and it had sticks. And the carrots were to essentially pump about $75 billion into the mortgage servicing industry. These are the people who, uh, who when you're a borrower and you've got a loan, they're the people, they're big, essentially the debt collectors. They manage the loan. So we were going to pump, but they're, and many again, they're owned by the banks. Um, and so we were going to pump $75 billion worth of incentives into them on one half. And on the other half, we were going to reform bankruptcy law. Currently, bankruptcy law says that um, judges can write down the principle. They can alter a, a loan on a whole host of luxury products, including investment properties. What they can't do is ever touch a, uh, a primary residence. So if you have a summer home in Florida, you can take that to bankruptcy court. If you have your house that you've lived in for 20 years and got in trouble through one of these subprime mortgages, you can't take that to bankruptcy court. So there was a bill to, to, to alter that in the Senate. And on Thursday, the banking lobby killed it. Um, after two months of uh, lobbying against it, uh, they managed to kill it. So I, I think you, to, to, uh, to say what, where do they stand, they stand pretty strong still, um, even in the face uh, of, of where we're at. So, I mean, that's, that's daunting. So I, I'm not sure what comes next. We, we, the bottom line is that borrowers need to get some sort of leverage um, versus the banks um, in order to get out of these bad deals. And, and, and we've got to come up with a way to give them that leverage. Is there a way that the politicians who killed this uh, ability for us to possibly use our own, the, if we only have one single residence, to use our family residence in bankruptcy hearings, uh, is it possible that the people who stopped that um, are they going to be punished for this, you know, electorally? Because it would seem that that would be a very – it would be, seem that right now it would be very unpopular uh, politically to be siding with the banking industry, especially on a rule like that. Well, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's complicated public policy that people aren't following very closely. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's, that's the business of lobbyists. They know that. Um, and so uh, the administration had a rollout with great fanfare in February around how, what their foreclosure prevention plan was going to be. And, and, and they're moving forward with it. This piece of it, the one piece that gave borrowers leverage, had to have congressional approval. And they quietly killed it. And so will, will the will, – will, Will the elected officials be held held accountable? I, you know, it'd be nice to say they would, but who's going to tell them that they're that they? Who's going to tell voters that they should be held accountable? Um, it's 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 the sort of thing that flies under the radar. It gets lost in all of these the the the, the swine flu and, and and all of the many things that we're facing today. It's 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 hard to imagine uh, how you get bankruptcy form bankruptcy reform uh, before a voter on a ballot. So we're we're pretty. You think that we're pretty much uh, pretty poorly informed at this point as to where the housing crisis is, what caused it, and how we can get out of it at this point. Correct? 
Well, I mean, I think your opening question points to one of the huge problems is that um, that, that industry um, and those and, and you were right to point out it's not just Republicans; those 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 elected officials who support the industry um, have done a really good job of framing this conversation as, as something that that individuals who were uh, greedy and sloppy got us all into this crisis as opposed to saying that there was something structural here um, that an, an industry designed for the purpose of over-leveraging America um, was allowed to do so. And, and, and as long as it's framed as a conversation about my neighbor down this road is irresponsible and that got us into this problem and now I'm paying for it, um, it's uh, it's difficult to 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 do anything about it politically, um, and, and and so we have to figure out how to change that framing. Um, we've got to get um, we, we we've got to get more people informed about what actually happens. Well, can we say that it, you know because this is one of the uh, problems I, I often have with the attempted objectivity, the attempted fairness is that uh, too often journalists will say. I know, uh, and I guess a good example would be scientists believe in evolution. Of course, there are those who disagree and believe that uh, creationism is the way that uh, all life came to being on uh, on Earth. Um, and so when you put those two next to each other as parallels, it sounds like they have the exact same weight, the exact same amount of authority and force are in both of those statements. So my uh, problem with trying to be objective and be fair is it often gives far more uh, uh, weight and authority to a, uh, an issue or a topic within the framing that uh, can mislead uh, readers or mislead listeners. Uh, so, I- is it fair to say that it's a share that the housing collapse uh, is a shared responsibility, not just of predatory lenders and speculators and uh, maybe a sleep at the wheel government as far as regulation is concerned, but also unqualified borrowers? Or does that make them have an equal say in what happened. You know, a friend of mine put it put it well the other day. It's sort of like with um, with, with criminal justice, we get this that there is um, while more, while many people may have been involved, it's not that does not mean that we have shared culpability, right? So if you're the, the person who uh, who sold drugs on the corner is not as responsible as the kingpin, um, and similarly, you know. The, there are many, many borrowers who are over leveraged, who got themselves, who made bad choices. Um, they are not um, of, they do not share the same level of responsibility as an industry that was built for the purpose of convincing them to make bad choices. Um, and regulators who, who ignored 10 years worth of warnings um, that that is precisely what was going on and that we were going to end up exactly where we are today. Um, and, 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 you know, it's so, it, and, and, and it's, it's probably part of it is media framing, but I, I, you know, I hasten to point out that the president talks about it in this way as well. Um, he regularly talks about the sort of shared responsibility and, 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 and the moral, it, it, it draws moral equivalencies between a borrower who said, okay, well, this seems like a, this seems like a too good to be true deal, but, um, you know, these people are the professionals and they're telling me that this is, this is the right thing to do. And the government says, it says we're able to do it. It's perfectly legal. So, um, I'm going to do it, um, between those people and, and those who, who willfully who, who, who set about, dreamed up products, dangerous products, and sold them uh, to, pe- to people who had little understanding of the products they were buying. Um, and, and so it's the responsibility of the media, but it's also, this is also something that, that a 
elected officials at the highest uh, highest level have participated in creating this framing. Do you think that uh, the that is the foreclosure crisis? Is it uh, essentially is it segregated? Because here, like in Chicago, we have uh, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart, and I think that he is still recognizing this. He's not putting through any more foreclosures whatsoever. He's not evicting anybody due to foreclosure right. in Cook County whatsoever anymore. This dates back to uh, October, and I think it's still going on. And the original reason was a crush of uh, the amounts of foreclosures. And then I think that there was also kind of a moral and political decision that was made not to evict people in the Cook County area. So to what extent, how bad is the foreclosure crisis for either those of us who live in Cook County who are not seeing people evicted or for those people who live in uh, more stable communities where there there hasn't been foreclosures in their neighborhood. So for those people who are not seeing foreclosures, you know, I remember from the early 80s, the invisible poor, right, the invisible homeless. Uh, How bad is the foreclosure crisis out there? How is it not just an invisible foreclosure crisis? Well, I mean, you know, we, 11% at the end of 2008, 11%, that's more than one in 10 of uh, all outstanding home loans were in default. <laughs> you know, um, that, there's there's little invisible about that. And even if you don't see it on your block, you're seeing it um, in the job losses. You're seeing it in the economy. I mean, this is this is the reason that we're in a recession, um, is that you cannot have, that's an $11.5 trillion market. You cannot have one-tenth of it be in default and have a viable economy. You can't do it. Um, and so, so whether or not you see a foreclosure down the street, you are, we're all seeing it. We're all living through it. Um, and, and until we stop these foreclosures, we're going to stop. So the toxic assets we keep hearing about, these are these loans. They are literally these loans. Um, and until they start to perform, the economy is not going to turn around. Um, and, you know, and again, there, there, there's a whole lot of par- proposals on the table for making them perform. Um, and the administration's plan is it, it, it is in many ways a good one on the incentive side. Um, it, it you know every, it, it deals with all of the technical things that are getting in the way of uh, of, of getting these loans rewritten so that they're viable. Um, but it does nothing on the enforcement side, and this has been the problem with the administration's approach to the banks in general, um, is it does nothing to force them to say, you know what, this is a new day, um, and you are going to have to play ball. Uh, and, and the bankruptcy reform was the only piece of it that, that did that, and, and, and now we don't have that. Um, and so we're still, so, so that's the question that remains on the table. That's the question that everybody should continue to focus their minds on. What is the enforcement piece? What is the piece that says, okay, banks, you're going to have to participate in making this right. Right. You say that one of the problems with the Obama plan so far has been the voluntary participation uh, mode of it, aspect of it, uh, that doesn't have the kind of enforcement that is necessary. But it would seem like, especially with the concentration of power on Wall Street because of the conglomeration of investment banks, of different firms, of different Wall Street firms, that more and more power is being concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Therefore, they have more and more impact on what is happening within legislation, what is happening on Capitol Hill. So can a piece of legislation help? Uh, is there uh, the possibility that there could be a piece of legislation that would help out those who are facing foreclosure, who are facing eviction, and still keep people on Wall Street happy? Or is it possible, or is it impossible for the president or anybody to come up with a kind of legislation that would keep both sides happy? Is it going to be uh, one versus the other? 
Well, so far it has been, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, in the end, I, I, I think we have to let go of whether or not why trying to keep Wall Street happy. I'm, I'm not sure why that's a, 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 a necessary goal. Um, you know, I, I think the bottom line is we have to make Wall Street work. I don't whether they're happy or not is, is beside the point, and, um, and 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 it currently doesn't work. Um, you know, pretty much any you know and this is beyond my pay grade, but but any economist I've read or talked to agrees that the banks are don't are, are insolvent, and they refuse to accept that um, until the administration forces them to accept that they won't work. Um, that's in their interest, and that's in our interest. That's in everybody's interest. Um, these foreclosures are crippling our economy, and until we stop them. Um, it, we are in trouble, and that's in the bank's interest. That's in our interest. That's in everybody's interest. I mean, one of the one of the things that that is striking, I learned in the course of this this most recent article, is you know foreclosures are are actually financially in everybody's bad worst interest. Um, the investors who own the loans lose significantly more money on every foreclosure than they would on if they wrote the, the wrote down the principle of the loan. Uh, there's a scholar at Valparaiso University, Alan White, who has done the research. He's gone through investor reports um, and and shown, uh, I think it's a three or four-fold uh, difference um, in how much investors lose. The problem is that the way that the industry is structured means that, that makes it makes the short-term goals uh, most most present. And so in the short term, the foreclosure is the fastest, cheapest, easiest way to stop the bleeding. But in the long term, it is by far the most expensive thing to everybody involved. Um, and so, so, so the problem is that the banking industry actually doesn't work. Um, it, it, it works poorly. It works poorly for itself and everybody else. And it is stuck in this negative feedback loop where it can't seem to grasp that. And it is the the, the job of government to force it to grasp that, um, and and that's that's something we have just not yet been willing to do. Was this um, was this ingenious of the people who gamed the system or and made money off of this? The people who were able to, you know, even if they were fraudulent, predatory loans, able to get people to sign on, sign off into paperwork, get their commission that they wanted to get, and you got more of a commission if you gave out a subprime loan. Uh, was it ingenious on their part, or was it incompetent? How would you side on that? Who knows? Um, you know, I mean, ask uh, ask ten people you'll get who know what they're talking about. You'll get ten different answers. Um, you know, I I think there's 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 plenty of both. Um, you know, I think certainly when we talk about the piece we're at now, um, you know, so so you know, as we all sadly know, this is a this is a long and complicated business. You know, and it and it started off with brokers and originators making loans that they shouldn't have made, um, that were too large, um, conning people into them, and then selling them off into the securities market. Now those people don't don't have it, but have have anything else to do with the loan. Now they now they belong to the investors. They've become toxic assets. And there are servicers, many of whom are owned by the same banks that originated originated the loans, who are responsible for handling the loans. Those servicers are the are the place where we're at now that is the most uh, the most difficult nut to fix. And and everything that that I see looks like they're just plain incompetent. Um, they uh, it's an industry that was not built 
to deal with the problem at hand. It was an industry. It was an industry that went through massive consolidation, outsourcing, automation, all of the things that we we hear about in other industries that left it completely unequipped to deal with an 11% default rate. And so it actually, in many cases, literally it doesn't have the the manpower um, to rewrite the loans, Um, let alone even if you put the will aside, even if they all wanted to fix the loans, they have neither the skill nor the manpower. And in order to go get it, would cost them the amount of money that would make their their entire business model not work anymore. Um, so, is it incompetence? Is it just evil? <laughs> Who knows? It's a, it's a lot of both. Um, but ultimately, the, the bottom line is that it is going to be the prop. It is the job of the public sector to step in and say, whatever the cause, we're going to force you to fix this. Uh, you mentioned how <clears throat> an uh, April Charney of Jacksonville, Florida uh, area legal aid argues that this mortgage maze is more insidious than hapless because few servicers can foreclose without committing fraud. The mortgage-backed securities market is terribly Byzantine, but it's also one governed by hard and fast rules that make it labor-intensive for all involved. And that uh, militates against the high-volume, low cost business models of originators and servicers. How have they gotten around this dilemma? Charney and a growing number of lawyers and judges say they simply cheat. So uh, servicers can for, can't can foreclose without committing fraud, and at the same time, uh, lawyers and judges think that they cheat. How, how is it that a mortgage servicer would be committing fraud by trying to foreclose? Well, this is, and I think that's it. so april's assertion is that it's fraud some people would say that it's not fraud um either way it's there 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 are some legal hurdles that they cannot meet um one is that in order to foreclose upon a property you have to prove that you have the right to do so you have to prove ownership of the note um and in the rapid fire business of of originating and selling off these loans into the securities market they skip that step that you, you, there needs to be a, an assignment of the mortgage from the originator to the to to the invet, to the pool um, of loans to the trust that that oversees the the pool of loans in the securities market. They didn't do that, and so now that they're going back to foreclose upon the loans, they run they get into whenever there's a a, a judge who actually is paying attention says, well, wait a minute, you got to show me that you own the loan, and they can't do it, and so they create false documents. They go back and, and recreate the assignments that were supposed to be done on the front end. Um, there's, uh, there's an infamous deposition from a, a, a Citibank um, employee who had been given, her, her actual title was assistant foreclosure manager. She'd been given um, a ghost title of vice president alongside that for the purpose of signing these fake loan assignments. Uh, and so she was deposed by a lawyer down in Jacksonville where she revealed, you know, a, no, I'm not an actually vice president. No, I didn't. I, I, you know, I signed these hundreds of assignments, <laughs> but, I, but I wasn't there at the time that the loan was originated. The notary stamp on it, the, per, the person who notarized it wasn't there when I signed it. Uh, all of the, just a whole host of, I never reviewed any of the documents for any of the loans. A whole host of things that they did that that are in fact fraud. Um, it, it seems to me I'm not a lawyer, so I, I'm not going to argue that I, you know I can't say either way. But there are many lawyers who say that is in fact fraud upon the court um, in order to foreclose upon homes. Because why? Because in the beginning of the process, they were so rapidly making these loans 
that were so badly thought out in the first place that they couldn't even do all the paperwork. And on top of that, all these, like you point out in your article, all these mortgage servicers uh, conglomerated together, just like all the other industries seem to be doing at that same time. All this corporate conglomeration was going on during the 80s, during the 1990s. And you ask, can the crisis, can the housing crisis be stopped as long as the mega servicers call the shots? And can we simply buy them off? Why do we have to buy them off? Why do we need them? Uh, it, 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 do we need them more than us? Is it, again, the government and maybe some of the media falling for the argument that they're, they're too big to fail? Uh, why, it, why do we need to save and why do we need to buy off the mortgage servicers? Well, it's a difficult question. I mean, it, someone's got to do the work of rewriting these loans, right? I mean, some of the, so, so the, the loans are owned by somebody at this point. They're owned by all these investors. Um, and someone's got to go in and do what is actually really complicated and difficult work of figuring out, okay, how do you take this overvalued bad loan and turn it into something that's going to perform over the course of 10, 15 years, which is what should have been done on the front end, right? But now on the back end, it has to be done. Um, I, I, I suppose one strategy would be to simply take over for the government to simply take over all the loans and become the the, the servicer for 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 every failed loan in the country. I I, I, I think that's probably unworkable. So we do need um, someone. We need an industry. The problem is we don't need the industry as it is structured today. Um, we have to come up with ways to force them to build a business model that is based upon not on. Uh, preying upon people to write bad loans, but that is based upon making sound, reasonable, affordable loans to people. Um, and 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 I think we've 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 got a lot uh, we've got a lot of good ideas for doing that. But what we won't do is the piece where we force them to do it. Um, and until we force them to do it, they're not going to do it. Um, it, it caught, that's why they didn't build that kind of business in the first place, because it's more expensive and less profitable. You make this really good point, too, in the article, that it's not just a matter of home values being exaggerated at one time, and now the home values are dropping, and that's what's leading to uh, the economic downturn. It, it, it keeps spiraling downward now that people have lost their jobs due to the uh, housing and economic crisis, crises that we face here in the United States. Uh, now there are more jobless people, and now they're not even if they have a place of value, even if they didn't uh, get a subprime loan or weren't the victims of a predatory loan. Now, those people who are jobless, they're now losing their place, which would assume then that the supply will go up, demand will uh, drop, and the prices of all these homes will again continue to spiral downward. What can we do to get out of what seems like an endless spiral downward into economic collapse when it seems like the very you know, as soon as one situation may seem to have been at least uh, an attempt at being solved, uh, another situation appears. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sort of foreclosure 2.0. As, exactly. As, you know, and I set the the, the the this recent article in Jacksonville, and it's a city that um, actually had been Jacksonville, Florida, that that had been exceptional in Florida's sort of wild ride. Uh, uh, you know, it's, Florida's always been a state of of, of great economic speculation. It was, it was a city that had a pretty stable economy um, within that um, until the foreclosure crisis came along, um, and you know, and and so this this feedback, this loop between foreclosure and unemployment, and foreclosure and unemployment will go on. 
what are, what are the what are the the solutions? You know, so one was was bankruptcy reform. It passed the House, um, uh, and and now it's it, it failed in the Senate. There's there's a bunch of other ideas out there. One, uh, Dean Baker, an economist. Uh, uh, that says that we ought to create uh, a right to rent law so that if rent so that when you get foreclosed upon you have the right to stay in the property as a renter um and and the point here is that that makes it makes foreclosure a much less attractive option because you can't resell the property um which you can't do anyway but it but it brings it brings that home point home clearly to the to the to the investors and the servicers um another option uh is um creating mandatory uh pre foreclosure mediation by some sort of third party so what does that mean in philadelphia it it's actually happening and and working um where by court order um a judge has to review um, a foreclosure before it happens. Um, you have to, if you want to foreclose, part of the process is you've got to go to some sort of third party. It could be a judge. It could be, you know, an, an independent panel that says, okay, let's look at the case and make sure that foreclosure is the right option. Um, and uh, and if you had, if borrowers had that right, uh, it would slow the pace for place of foreclosures and force lenders to start. Uh, to, to start looking at what's a way we can rewrite this loan instead of just jump to foreclosure, and that's something that's that's gaining in popularity. The, the uh, Acorn, the uh, much maligned uh, community community development group, um, has petitioned uh, the Department of Housing and Urban uh, Development to create federal grants for states to to run these sort of mandatory pre foreclosure programs. Um, the uh, there, there's a number of places that are looking at it and debating it. Like I said, Philadelphia has been doing it successfully. Um, New York has a version of it. Uh, I, I'm not going to remember the states off the top of my head, but there are a number of localities that are stepping in to fill the federal vacuum. Um, and as you point out, I mean, some at the at the Uber local level, there are sheriffs and ju- there are sheriffs that are refusing to foreclose, and there are judges that are just throwing out foreclosure cases as they come before their courts um, because in, in places where you have judicial foreclosure, um, because of the fact that they look at these loans and they see fraud. Um, so, so there's a lot of there there, there are many small bore local solutions out there, and sooner or later the federal government is going to have to step up to the plate um, and pick up on some of these ideas and nationalize them. Uh, Kai, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Kai Wright. He is a Brooklyn writer and editor and senior writer for TheRoot.com. Kai is the author of Drifting Toward Love, Black, Brown, Gay, and Coming of Age on the Streets of New York, published by Beacon Press. We have a direct link to their webpage. You can buy the book directly from the uh, publisher. His most recent writing includes the Nation article, More Mortgage Madness. Last June, Kai also wrote Mortgage Industry Bankrupts Black America for the Nation. Check out his website at KaiWright.com. That's K-A-I-W-R-I-G-H-T, KaiWright.com. One last question for you, Kai, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. You know, you were pointing out about the, uh, I guess, the kind of two different sides in the fight right now that's on 
uh, in the Beltway on Capitol Hill when it comes to uh, what's going to happen with the foreclosure crisis, what's going to happen with the banking crisis, what's going to happen with this economic downturn, how the government's going to react. You mentioned how uh, one of the reform that's being suggested, you were just mentioning this, is entice states with TARP money to create mandatory pre-foreclosure mediation programs. That's an idea brought up by this uh, group ACORN that, as you were saying, is much maligned group, group that's often said to be some sort of, you know, commie inner city group that's, uh, you know, making uh, people fill out fraudulent voter applications in order so they can throw elections, right? That's what we're always hearing about them. And the other person that you're mentioning, Dean Baker, who's been on our show uh, many times in the past, he came up with this idea for a right to rent uh, law, but it doesn't look like Congress is all that excited about it. I mean, it's a great idea, but it doesn't seem like Congress or folks on Capitol Hill are all that excited about it. So when you think about what the two sides are right now, it seems like it's folks like Dean Baker, a, a really great uh, economist who I admire very much, but at the same point is kind of marginalized as a lefty economist. Just, I mean, even, you know, if Paul Krugman is being marginalized as a lefty economist, you can imagine how far Dean Baker is being pushed out there, as well as ACORN fighting for the rights of those who might be uh, foreclosed upon, those who might be evicted upon in uh, some of the most uh, poorest neighborhoods in the United States and trying to represent their claims versus Wall Street and the banking lobby. You know, I hate to tell you, uh, Kai, but my money is on Wall Street and the banking lobby. So, I mean, is it pretty ho- – I mean, is – is, is there any hope? I mean, that this is supposed to be the president that was supposed to bring about hope and change. Uh, do you have any hope for a change away from a banking lobby, a Wall Street, uh, industry-friendly uh, approaches to trying to save this economic crisis when the only people that are fighting them are people like Dean Baker and Acorn? Well, I mean, on, so there's 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 an economic side to that and there's a political side to that. So on the economic side to that, um, the the – the unfortunate source of hope is the fact that we haven't hit the bottom yet, and, uh, and and as long as we continue along this path, sooner or later, we're going to have to change. We don't have a choice. It's just a matter of how painful it's going to get before we stop um, letting ourselves be held hostage by the banking industry. Sooner or later, it, it's going to change. It's inevitable. It's going to change. Um, the, 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 the question is how much damage happens along the way. On the political side, there are there are some reasons for hope. One is, is Arlen Specter. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the mass of the Senate has changed dramatically, um, and that's important. Um, that is very important. That's that's you know, it, it, we were arguing over a handful of votes that killed this bankruptcy bill, um, and uh, and and this changes the whole host of things. And then two, you know. I have personally been frustrated with um, with with the Obama administration's economic team, um, and particularly on this question of banking. But one thing I think we have learned about Barack Obama is that he has a learning curve, um, and that uh, he is different from his predecessor in that way, um, and and that he will walk his he is willing to learn and walk himself towards towards the right answer. And I think that in dealing with Wall Street, we're dealing with an area of policy that, frankly, he is not that familiar with. He's never had any real experience, any personal experience with. Um, he didn't work on Wall Street. And he went and got the exact two wrong advisors in Lawrence Summers and Timothy Geithner um, on on how to deal with it. Um, I think that ultimately um, he is going to figure out uh, that, that he's going to have to get 
go beyond um, incentives and move into some enforcement as well, and that he's going to have to actually go to the mat for those for those enforcement incentives. And there are people in the administration who get that as well. Sheila Baer at the FDIC, um, the vice president's at Jared Bernstein and the vice president's um, economic team, speaking of great progressive economists. There are people in the administration that get it. They have to get their chance to get the president's ear. And uh, sadly, I think it's going to take us getting getting a little further down the road before uh, before he starts listening to some outside sources. Kai, I really appreciate you being back on the show with us this morning. People can check out your writing at kaiwright.com. That's K-A-I-W-R-G-H-T.com. And uh, I strongly suggest that you read the article from last summer as well so you can uh, get a bigger perspective and a bigger picture on what's happening with this mortgage crisis. And again, that was an article from last June, last July, and uh, it still is uh, holds its weight. Uh, Kai, I really appreciate you being back on our show this morning. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Chuck spoke with Kai Wright in May of 2009. Hi, producer Alex here with an archive show featuring interviews on the causes and effects of the global financial crisis of 2008. Next up, we're going to hear from Robin Hanel in March of 2010. On the line with us right now is economist Robin Hanel. Good good morning in uh, Portland, Robin. Good morning. Yes, we're having a a wonderful morning here in Portland. Uh, we're, we're rooting spring in on we're rooting spring in with some bright sunshine and wonderful weather. You know, uh, you, you know this magazine that they have like in London and New York. This magazine, Time Out. I am not very familiar with it. No, I'm <laughs> okay, well then this won't be in any way a compliment to you. I apologize. The last time we had you on the show back in 2005, uh, it was the only time that we were mentioned in this. Uh, it's kind of like an entertainment magazine, Time Out. Uh, they actually had an announcement about this show, and they're the only time we've been in there. And they were all excited about the fact that Robin Hanel was going to be on the show. Who <laughs> knew that radical well, economists were so popular in entertainment magazines? Well, I... To tell you the truth, I am not somebody who is media savvy, and that includes left media as well. So I'm not surprised that I don't know about them, but I'm glad they appreciate your show. <laughs> you know what, though? Uh, the fact that you're not media savvy, that makes you perfect for this show, because I'm still not making a goddamn dime off this, so I think we're in the same boat. Well, when it comes down to not making money, yes, uh, I'm good at that also. <laughs> Excellent. You know, uh, earlier we were talking uh, with uh, the unembedded uh, uh, journalist who covered, unembedded reporter in the Iraq War, who is an independent journalist, author. We just got off the phone with him, uh, Dar Jamal. And we were talking about how there's, uh, you know, uh, never any money for infrastructure. There's never any money for jobs. Uh, we're always, when you, uh, when the uh, Congress, when the uh, Senate, when the president um, asks for money, uh, when when they're asking for money on certain projects, they always get less than they asked for. But when it comes to the military, they always get more than they asked for. And this isn't just something that's happening under the Obama administration, under the Bush administration. But during the Clinton administration, there was a Pentagon budget where the uh, Clinton administration, um, where the Pentagon asked for so much money, and then the Clinton administration actually gave them far more than they even wanted. And it surprised the people, the uh, Pentagon at that time. And so this leads me to the question that you you were uh, right about every, in your one of your pieces here. Or actually, this is from your um, 
let me get this exactly right. I want to get the URL right. Uh, from the New Left Project, newleftproject.org. Uh, this is from an interview that you did that's been cut up into three parts at Z Magazine's website, ZNet. And you talk about the impact of uh, military spending as opposed to um, as opposed to infrastructure spending. You cite a study for the. Uh, Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, published back in 2008. Uh, Co-director Bob Poland, who's been on our show in the past, past, testified before the House Committee on Education and Labor about the findings on October 24, 2008. As you point out, quote, the study revealed that $150 billion stimulus comprised of spending increases on educational and health services, public infrastructure, and green investments would create 2.9 million new jobs, while a $150 billion stimulus composed of tax cuts for household consumption, military spending, and spending on the oil and gas industry would only create 1.5 million new jobs. So twice as many jobs if the money is spent on education, health care, infrastructure, and green investments than if it's spent on tax cuts, the military, and the gas and oil industry. But the way that the right frames this is we either support the troops and oppose taxes, or we throw money at welfare. Can that framing be undone now that it has been uh, repeated so many times and gone unchallenged for 30 years, or are we stuck with this logic ad infinitum? Well, I mean, we're stuck with it until, you know, until we come to our senses. Um, Look, the truth is that the, the big elephant that's in the room that nobody ever wants to look at is... The Cold War is over. <laughs> um, if there was ever an excuse to have a massive U.S. military budget for defensive, per, you know, for defensive reasons, then perhaps when there was an actual large, armed, credible enemy out there, um, you could justify that. Um, but ever since the Cold War is over, the big news that never happened is there was never any peace dividend. Um, and that totally warps spending priorities here in the United States. That is the number one reason there's never money for the things we need that actually help people here in the United States, because we are continuing to spend so much money on the military budget. Um, that's, that's the elephant in the room nobody really wants to talk about. That's the military-industrial complex that a Republican president and, you know, the head of the military in World War II warned against. Back in the 50s, Dwight Eisenhower, that's the military-industrial complex. And it basically has us all by the, by the short hairs. Um, and it has for, you know, 40, 50 years now. Um, and that has continued to be the case under Clinton administration, Democratic administration, the Obama administration, etc. Now, what that report from Perry points out is that in a situation where we desperately need jobs, and when you want to get the most jobs you can for your federal deficit dollar is what it comes down to, it turns out that if you look and see where you could get your most jobs, it does not come from increased spending on the military. It comes from spending on exactly those priorities that we progressives have been saying are getting underspent on and are in great need all along. Um, health education, and greening the economy, basically getting our economy ready, you know, for, you know, for the new energy-efficient era that we're going to have to move into if we're going to avoid 
catastrophic climate change by the middle of the century. Um, but that's happening. Um, the, at, right now, there are 15 million Americans who are out looking for work. And when you look at job programs that, um, the job programs that are being, that, that, are, that are in the works from the administration and Congress, they are going to do absolutely nothing to solve that problem. And this is what really bugs me about this. Okay, so military spending is not the way to go if you want to create jobs. Military spending is not the way that you want to go if you, therefore, want to help out the economy. The thing that everybody is saying across the board, Democrats and Republicans are saying right now, is what is hurting the Obama administration is jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs is it. If you can get more people to have jobs, then things will get better. It'll help out the economy. It'll help out the politics of the Obama administration. It'll help out... the. Uh, incumbents in Congress and in Senate. Uh, and it, it, so that's that's one aspect of the stupidity of putting money within uh, military spending rather than uh, health care and the like, infrastructure and the things that you pointed out. But on top of that, now is the one. And, and the other thing that's happening is that we're, we're now we're now getting scared out of doing what is desperately necessary by what I would call the sort of deficit boogeyman. The Republicans are the Republicans' behavior is understandable and predictable. They didn't care about deficits when they wanted their tax cuts for the wealthy. Right. They didn't care about deficits when they wanted to spend more on the military. Now they don't want the Obama administration um, to. They want the Obama administration to fail. They want it to fail for narrow political opportunistic reasons on their part. They could care less whether or not the American economy continues to suffer and the person in Main Street does. They now know that the incumbent will be blamed by the failure to solve the we-need-jobs problem in this country. And they're doing absolutely everything they can to make sure that Obama cannot, and the Democratic Congress cannot, pass a jobs bill that's sufficient. What's sad is to watch the Obama administration basically, you know, play into that, instead of pointing out that these people are hypocrites and unpatriotic, to validate the idea that we have to concern ourselves with deficits right now is absolutely mind-bogglingly insane, and it's very counterproductive, and if anything, it will be what it is that loses the Democrats the majority in Congress and loses Obama re-election in 2012. Here is the simple message. Economists, good economists have known this since the time of Keynes. When you're in the middle of the worst recession slash depression that we have had in 80 years, the government has to spend more than it's collecting in taxes, and it has to do it big time. And here's the sad truth. The bigger the deficit we run right now, the smaller the national debt will be five years from now. Because the way the national debt increases most dramatically is when you don't stem the recessionary slide. Until production picks up and people have income again, taxes will continue to go down. They'll collect less and less taxes because people aren't paying taxes when they haven't got jobs and income. The only way you're going to get people back to work is running a deficit in the short run. We need a bigger deficit now. We need a much bigger stimulus bill that takes the form of a big deficit. And what the Republicans have managed to tap into is popular fear of deficit spending, confusing the bailout of the banks, which was a tremendous amount of sort of mortgaging the future, but it in no way created any new jobs. 
And, you know, I was going to say earlier, too, that not only do we uh, uh, spend money on the military and we don't create as many jobs as if we created infrastructure, we also spend money on the, according to a new study, uh, we spend money on our military the least efficiently of all the countries that do spend money on their military. The United States scored last in a new study that examined how 33 major militaries spend funds on weapon systems, uh, while potential U.S. rival uh, Russia ranked third out of 33. So it not only are we putting money in the wrong area, Area, but we're not even helping out the people who are on the ground that are the, the troops that we are supporting. But you, you mentioned this part about uh, where you write or where you've said that uh, centrist Democrats, which describes President Obama and his economic policy team perfectly, are currently responsible for failure to provide a sufficient uh, fiscal stimulus by pandering to what they le- uh, legitimate as popular concern over deficits, rather than explain why fighting to reduce deficits now is counterproductive in denouncing those who fan the flames of popular concern over deficits for the unpatriotic political opportunists that they are. Now, do you think that the... So the Republicans are doing this. The Republicans are trying to undermine the uh, Obama administration. They're trying to undermine the amount of resources he can have to create a jobs program uh, because this is what the, op- the you know, politically opportunistic, sure, but this is what the opposition uh, party does. They try to take power. Their number one goal isn't what, if for both parties, isn't what's best for the United States but it is what's best for their ability to get into power or have more power if they are in power. Do you think the same, then, goes for the Democrats, that when the Democrats are not in power, that they also uh, fight against the Republicans for, not for the concern of what's best for America, but what they can do to get back into power? Uh, Much less effectively than the Republicans do, and the concern now is the Democrats are in power, and they're basically playing into the Republicans' hands. They're essentially, by buying into this sort of fear of deficit, we cannot spend enough to reverse the, uh, the slide and start getting people back to work. By buying into that and not taking that on and using their majorities in Congress and the fact that they actually do supposedly rule in the White House, they are allowing the Republicans to create a situation where we are not going to have a recovery when the when people go to the polls in November of ten thousand in November of this year, we're going to have the same unemployment rate that we have now. And if things continue this way in two thousand and twelve, we will still be in you know, we'll either still be in a deep recession, depression, or we'll be in a jobless recovery where the ordinary person you know still hasn't got a job. Um, that, that's the, the infuriating thing is that the Democrats are essentially failing to even serve their own narrow political interests of staying in power by being so foolish um, at not doing what's necessary to go out and get jobs. Yeah, that's, that's the amazing part to me. And you know what really it's gets... Because of his advisors. I mean, it, it, I'll tell you what it comes down to. Look, ruling elites throughout the world created this problem. They are doing nothing effective to actually combat it and pull the world out of this recession. Some are doing better, some are doing worse. But that's generally true for sort of the ruling elites and governments worldwide. Governments are going to topple. They're not solving this problem, and governments are going to topple. And the question is going to come down to us, when they topple, are they going to topple to the right or the left? Because people are going to get increasingly angry. The people in Greece are just the beginning of the popular outrage on people's part saying, 
I didn't benefit from this bubble. I didn't create this problem. I'm not responsible for creating this mess. And now you're asking me to pay the price of fixing it. Um, I think not. We're going to get more and more of that. And the more of that we get in the United States, the better off we'll be and the faster we'll be better off. But the question is going to come whether or not that's going to topple government and essentially allow right-wing governments to come back to power or whether it's going to move things to the left. In the United States, the real question is this. Is Obama going to fire Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner? Until he does, his economic policies are not going to change, and they are not going to be solving problems. If he wakes up quickly and gets rid of them and hires some economic advisors, there are plenty of people out there that are telling him what he needs to do. There are Nobel Prize-winning economists like Paul Krugman and Joe Stiglitz. Larry Summers never won a Nobel Prize. There are economists to the left of them who have even better ideas, like Dean Baker and Jane DeRista and Bob Poland. They know how to get the jobs going. They know how to fix the economy. Um, the only advisor he fired was Van Jones, who was the only one who was telling him the right <laughs> things to do, which is massive stimulus spending green. You can have your cake and eat it, too. You can begin the process of greening the economy and put people back to work at the same time. Who's the only advisor that he has unceremoniously dismissed? That's the advisor he's let go. Yeah. Uh, you know, let me ask you just something real quick before. I, I want to talk about uh, some of your uh, now. Uh, I want to go through this economic crisis a little bit more with you, but before I do, um, I, I, obviously from reading your writing, you believe in deficit spending. You believe that this is the way to go, that fisc, uh, fiscal stimulus At package. This time, it's a question right. of time. Right. But, People get confused on this issue. There are times when you need to engage in deficit spending. There are times when you don't. This is one of those times when you do, and people have got to stand up and say that. Okay, so let's say, and just just so we know what the opposite thing is, without discussing deficit spending, what if the Obama, I know that this is a ridiculous uh, hypothetical, but what would be, detri- how detrimental would it be, in your opinion, to our economy if the Obama administration did all of the slashing and cutting and everything that they needed to do to balance the budget between now and, let's say, he stays in power up until 2016? How detrimental would that be to the American economy as we know it on Main Street, not as it's known on Wall Street? Oh, if they do that, we will be permanently mired in the recession, which will simply get worse and worse. Look, what is going to pull us out of this recession? Um, Consumer spending is not because people have lost jobs, because people have no equity in their houses anymore, because people's credit cards are maxed out. So we're not going to have a massive increase in consumer spending that provides the demand to get the country working again. As long as business conditions are as bad as they are, there's not going to be a massive increase in investment spending on the part of the, of the business community. Well, that only leaves one place left. In the short run, in the here and now, the government has to step into that gap. This was the lesson Keynes taught the world back during the Great Depression of the past. We, we learned this, and we have studiously managed to unlearn it. Now, there's a lot of people who, have the, you know, who bear the blame for unlearning this simple lesson from the last Great Depression. One is the economics profession that has literally taken Keynes out of the graduate curriculums and economics and Ph.D. programs in this country. 
I'm fully aware of that. I'm a part, I lived through that process for 30 years as a professional academic economist, and I watched good, sound macroeconomic policy being taken out of the curriculum. But it's not just the economists. Politicians have unlearned this lesson, and essentially a right-wing media um, that is really a right-wing controlled media for the most part in the use of the United States has hammered away on this issue about deficits, deficits, and has and essentially we are all being played for fools on this subject. So let's say- worst, if if Obama concentrates on reducing deficits during this year and next year and the next year, he will simply turn this recession into an even worse recession than we already have because we have got to increase demand for goods and services or we're not going to put those 15 million Americans looking for work back to work. You call it an essentially right-wing media. Everybody talks about what a great speaker President Obama is. Uh, even if he did come out and explain to everybody why deficit spending is so important and how we can get out of this uh, economic crisis with deficit spending, uh, being that, in your opinion, that the uh, media is essentially right-wing, I mean, that's 20 minutes or 40 minutes on the air, at the most, maybe 60 minutes of President Obama, no matter how good a speaker he is, trying to convince the American public is it uh, is it really impossible because you have a 24-hour news cycle with a right-wing media constantly telling you that the de- that deficit spending is the wrong thing to do can isn't the right-wing media isn't aren't folks like it uh, and even the way that uh, relatively left-wing media uh, relatively I should say uh, uh, relatively left-wing media the way in which they react to Fox News do- it doesn't Fox News and uh, other right-wing media, doesn't it have more power than the bully pulpit that the president has right now? Look, it's it's definitely a disadvantage to have the major media and the media that a good chunk of the American populace listen to be solidly right-wing. And there's there's only so much the bully pulpit can do, the president can do from the bully pulpit. But here, think about it right now. The Democrats in Congress, in the House of Representatives, they're actually was a lot of desire on the part of those Democrats in the House of Representatives to get a much more effective response to creating jobs. They wanted a second stimulus bill. And it was Obama's White House, when he took the advice of Larry Summers, his chief economic advisors, that's who nixed it. A lot of Democrats in the House of Representatives were very unhappy that we did not have a huge new second stimulus They knew they were likely to lose. In the end, what the American people are going to vote for right now are results. They'll listen to whatever they listen to. If somebody puts them back to work, they are going to they are going to reward that person, you know, with their voting loyalty. And if the people in power and that's and they look to see who's in the White House and they look to see they know who controls both houses of Congress. They know who's sitting in the White House. And if they're not put back to work they are not going to vote for those people. Um, so this was not just a case that Obama needed to come out and sort of lead the charge. His own party in the House of Representatives, in the, in the House of Representatives, wanted a much bigger stimulus package because they had the good sense to know they were going to get voted out of office in 2010 without it. The real question is, why did Obama listen to Larry Summers and say, "No, no, we can't afford it. No, no, the deficit." too big. Now, the reason the deficit is too big, by the way, is because they threw all that useless money at the banking bailout, which did not create jobs. So the real issue is, I mean, 
The real, the real shame is that the big, we did a massive big spending. We mortgaged the future. We did it to bail out the private banking sector, and the private banking sector's reward for that is they still don't provide credit to small businesses and ordinary people in a timely way, and they're simply rewarding their CEOs with massive bonuses again. That's where the spending went. That didn't create jobs. And now that's part of the problem about why we can't spend where we need to on greening the economy, education, health, et cetera. Here's one other thing that people really need to know. The stimulus that we had was half the size that it needed to be in the wrong composition. In this country, there's 50 states. The state governments have been cutting their spending because of their tax receipts going down. If you look at the spending cuts of the state governments, they pretty much cancel out the spending increase in the deficit spending that the federal government has engaged in. The truth of the matter is, when you add all of the state governments and the federal government together, we have had sort of pretty much no stimulus coming from the government sector. That is insane when you are in the middle of the worst depression or recession in 80 years. That's just absolutely insane, and yet that's what's been going on. And the Obama administration is going to get held, is going to get held responsible for this, you know, by the voting public in 2010 and 2012 if they don't wake up. You do not believe that the kind of economic crises we've faced are inherent to capitalist economies. You've said, I think this is an issue where the left needs a slap in the face. Collectively, the left likes to see itself as teaching great wisdom on this subject. In truth, the left has often spewed a great deal of nonsense about capitalist crises that undermines our credibility with people who actually know something about the subject. The idea that capitalism contains internal contradictions which act as seeds for its own destruction is simply wrong and needs to be discarded once and for all. Many 20th century progressives sustained themselves emotionally with false beliefs that capitalism's dynamism and technological creativity would prove to be its undoing as well as its strength. So it's wrong then to say that capitalism is the problem. And so can the current economic crisis be fixed through capitalism? Um, let me let me distinguish between two things. First of all, Chuck, I, I can't tell you how much trouble you know that quote has gotten me in with with you know many 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 of my colleagues and friends you know progressives and left friends throughout the you know for for, for decades. And that's why um, that's why I brought it up on the air because I like to get you in trouble, Robin. Well, that's just fine. I I got myself in trouble. <laughs> Happened. Here's what what I what I was saying there is that. I think the left needs to... Uh, I don't blame. Uh, I spend most of my time these days trying to convince my fellow leftists and progressives that we need to look inside ourselves to see what we've been doing wrong. The reason we aren't doing better and the reason the world is suffering as a result is, I believe, increasingly... I think it's increasingly obvious that it's mistakes that we've made and that we have not really owned up to. And this is simply one of them. The left has had a long history of preaching that capitalism, you know, has these internal contradictions, et cetera, et cetera. Most of that, I think, simply is wrong, um, and we need to own up to that. Now, <clears throat> that's not the same as saying that capitalism isn't the problem. It's just saying it's not going to self-destruct on its own. Um, 
I am a socialist. I believe that in the end, a hundred years from now, hopefully people will have woken up to the fact that organizing our economic activities in a system of competition and greed is just not the best we can do. That, first of all, these crises are always possible. There's a question, the difference here is possible versus inevitable. And sort of, can you do things to fix it, and should you try? Um, my position is, these crises will happen. They are not inevitable. Um, capitalism is not prone to self-destruct. Um, when these things happen, you have to do everything you can, you know, to protect ordinary people and the environment, you know, in the best possible ways. For instance, certainly in terms of finance, you need competent regulation of finance if you're going to have a capitalist financial industry. Um, because otherwise people suffer in ways that is needless and unnecessary. In the end, I want to replace this whole system with one that is not prone to these kinds of problems and is a much more sensible way to go about organizing our economic activities. Um, but in the short run, in the short run, there are ways to fix problems that we are suffering from that, unfortunately, our own government is not availing itself of, and people are going to suffer. The people are going to continue to suffer and suffer even more, and they're going to and they will get angrier and angrier. The question becomes: What direction do they turn in when they get angrier and angrier, and what kinds of things do they demand? You know that their new elected representatives actually do. The problem is that, Robin, and you know this, uh, when you say that you are a socialist, uh, people who watch Fox News believe that that means you're, they use all these terms interchangeably and they don't even know that they have different meanings. They use terms like uh, Stalinist and Marxist and fascist and uh, Hitler and Nazi. They use them all interchangeably as if they mean the sure. same thing. So when you say that you are a socialist, does that mean that you're a Soviet communist? Of course not, and I never have been. I have been, I, for 35 years as a professional economist and a left, and, a le and somebody who's on the left in the political spectrum, I wrote a tremendous amount and published about all the things that were wrong with the Soviet economic and political system. I have never been a supporter of that kind of socialism or of communism. But those are not the only kinds of socialists that have ever been. So, I mean, the, the socialist tradition is a long tradition that's over 200 years old. There are democratic socialists. There are social democrats. I call myself a libertarian socialist, somebody who believes in a very democratic and participatory kind of socialism, both political participation and popular participation in economic decision-making. I'm for, I'm for workers' own cooperatives. I'm for, you know citizens' budgets and, you know, that kind of socialism. Um, and it bears little, if any, resemblance to the sort of old Soviet-style socialism. Of course, the right wing wants to paint everybody as a commie, um, wants to paint everybody who is critical of capitalism as, you know, somebody who wants to go back to the old Soviet ways. Well, there are practically none of us out there who call ourselves socialists in any kind of way. That are saying that that's what we're that's that that's what we're in favor of. That's just uh, that's their soundbite. That's yeah. all it is. And the reason that it resonates is because they have a very big microphone. 
Yeah, and you know what? I just want to point out to our audience, uh, when you were last on our show back in 2005, uh, we were talking with you about your book, Economics, Justice, and Democracy. And that book is a great reference book for understanding, explaining, and for for people like me to uh, comprehend the different forms of capitalism that there are, including within it, as you were saying, libertarian socialism, social democracy, all these different forms of economic systems that we can look at. And it's a great reference for that. And you were kind enough to get your publisher to donate some of those, uh, some copies of that book to uh, give to people who donated to WNUR during our phonathon fundraiser back in 2006. And I really appreciate it. But it's just a great reference book that people should read so they can understand exactly what these terms really mean and not just what Fox News is telling us that they mean. One last question for you, Robin. We've been speaking with economist Robin Hanel. He is Professor Emeritus at American University in Washington, D.C. You can find his work uh, not only at the New Left Project, but you can find his articles that he's written recently on climate change as well at uh, ZNet, Z Magazine's website. All you have to do is go to Z mag.org and then go within the Znet section of that. We have direct links to uh, his uh, artic- his interview that he did uh, for the New Left Project that's been broken up into three different articles at Znet. Uh, you can click on any one of those articles then you can see his whole archive of articles that he's had posted at Z Magazine's website. One last question for you, Robin, and it's our question from hell, the question you might hate to ask, uh, or we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate to hear the response. And you know, today we are talking about the inefficiency of American military spending as far as getting to the troops, as far as that money getting down to the troops rather than paying for all sorts of procurement and other sidetracks and distractions of uh, the military spending. We've been talking about how military spending is not a way uh, in which to grow jobs within an economy, that you can grow twice as many jobs by putting money within infrastructure, within green uh, investment, within uh, all sorts of social spending like health Healthcare. Uh, we've been talking about how uh, this idea that we are that we must always fight against the deficit is something that you don't have to do, especially in a uh, point in time when we are in an economic crisis like we are today. And uh, you know, we didn't touch on this very much, but it also leads to this uh, kind of anti-tax thinking that we've had here in the United States. Now, what we're seeing is Kansas City, um, uh, Missouri, has slashed their schools in half here, closer to home in Chicago. Uh, in the suburb of Elgin, they're now going to be cutting all sorts of programs and all sorts of teachers, and there's going to be uh, more and more students per teacher. And as uh, the uh, writer Henry Giraud has uh, told us on our show, the only real cure to make sure that we can reform an education system is have less students per teacher so people can get a better education. How, what do you think it will take for people to realize, finally, that being uh, somebody who is a knee-jerk uh, uh, in opposition to taxes, somebody who is knee-jerk in opposition to deficit spending, and somebody who is knee-jerk in constant approval of the growing defense spending in the United States, what will it take for that uh, epiphany to finally happen? Look, that's 30% of the American public is, you know, firmly entrenched in the Fox World News. Um, we're not going to change their mind in the short run. And we should stop worrying about trying to change their mind in the short run. Right now, you know, the, the, we had a, we had a, a massive, we, we, we've had two massive electoral victories, one in 2006 
that threw the Republicans out of the House of Control of the House of Representatives and, and the Senate, and then won again in 2008, where we elected a president with a much greater majority than we've elected a president in a good long time. And that vote was a vote for change. That vote was a vote against the kinds of policy, the policy ill ill wisdom, I will call it, that is preached constantly on Fox News and, and in the right wing media. We simply have to get the the we have to get our politicians to act upon what a majority of the electorate has already clearly signaled they would like to see done. And the major obstacle right that right now to that are the advisors that President Obama has very unwisely chosen for himself on foreign policy, military policy, um, health care policy, economic policy. He has essentially chosen a set of advisors that are part of the... These are people who are responsible for having created the problems in the first place. These are not the people who have any idea what kinds of new policies we need to solve them. We need to... We need to build massive protest movements that basically in the short run hopefully will wake him up to what is in his own elect re-election interest, which is to dramatically change direction in terms of how he is approaching these policy issues. You know, and that's the thing that gets me the most, Robin, is just if he thinks of his own selfish self-interest, what's best for him is what's best for the economy, is what's best for the American people, and there's an unwillingness to do it, which will lead to him losing, possibly losing office, but definitely losing uh, control of Congress and the Senate. That's the part that's the most infuriating. Uh, that's the part where I'm constantly banging my head against the wall, that he's doing, seems to be doing everything he can to undermine his ability to not only stay in control of the White House, but to get, it, but to do what's best for the American people. That's what I just. It's the it's the worst this, part about. This is it. what this is what I am waiting. I'm, I am hoping that this will happen as soon as possible. I'm hoping he will wake up one morning and ask himself and call Larry Summers into the room and say, Larry, I appointed you chief economic advisor. I basically followed your advice. When we came into office, the Republican Party was in total disarray. (laughs) In 15 months, we have basically put them back in the driver's seat, and we are on the verge, you know, of putting them back in control of Congress and making my reelection very, very difficult, because the more they control Congress, the harder and harder they're going to make it for us to do anything that are going to improve the problems that are going to even get me reelected. Well, Larry... I'm sorry, I gave you 15 months, and you have failed, and you are fired, and I'm bringing in some very new ideas. That is what he needs to do in his own self-interest. That also coincides with the interests of the vast majority of the American public. That's why I'm hoping it'll happen. Yeah. Robin, I really appreciate you being back on the show. Enjoy the rest of your day in Portland and uh, and in Oregon. And uh, it's great to hear your voice again, again. And people ought to be reading your work over at Z Magazine as well as at the New Left Project. I really appreciate you coming back on our show. Well, it was great being on and keep up the good work. All right. Thanks, Robin. Bye-bye. Chuck spoke with Robin Hanel in March of 2010. Hi, producer Alex here. Thanks for listening to this giant episode exploring the 2008 hyphen question mark, question mark, question mark, financial crisis. Finally, Michael Hudson from October of 2010. Michael, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Excellent. How are you, Michael? 
I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it's great to hear you. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, this is a really interesting book, and I'm going to do something that I loathe to do, and I always apologize to our listeners, and I always make a point of making certain that our audience knows what a lame question this is to have as a first question by any interviewer of any guest, and it is a question that has to do with the title of your book. Whenever an interviewer asks somebody about the title of a book, I tell you, I always think it's a lame question, but I think it's a good place to start for this interview, and that is, the name of your book is The Monster, How a Gang of Predatory Lenders and Wall Street Bankers Fleeced America and Spawned a Global Crisis. So the, the title of your book is Monster. Is the monster just a few people? You know, is it just the uh, Roland Arnolds and the people over at Lehman Brothers uh, fold? Is it just them, the people who are running the show, or even, or is it a, an entire, you know, culture, or is it greed in general? Is it just simply greed? What is the monster? I think I think it's all all of the above. I mean, certainly the 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 monster is. Um... You know, I chose the title partly because it's just a reflection of this idea that we had this small, kind of obscure uh, mortgage market, the subprime, uh, you know, market that was 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 very tiny in in the in the early 1990s. But thanks to uh, Wall Street's, uh, you know, the cash flowing in from Wall Street, which sort of acted like like steroids, it became this monster that was big enough to, you know, like Godzilla to to kind of uh, uh, destroy our cities. Uh, you know, the, the other thing, the, the monster is also that there's um, reflects um, a sales pitch that one of the companies that I write about, First Alliance Mortgage, which was closely linked to Lehman Brothers, used. And uh, the monster was a uh, uh, a way of, um, of sort of luring borrowers in. It was part of a larger sales pitch, which lasted, uh, you know, two or three hours. And most of the time wasn't spent talking about the loan. Most of the time was these very well-trained, scripted loan officers asking questions of the borrowers, often, you know, an, an elderly couple or a retired couple who had a lot of equity in their house, ask them questions, you know, what, you know, very gently, you know, what are you worried about? Tell me about your grandkids. Tell me. The key was to reach inside and find their psychological pain. And um, the idea was once you found the pain, then you could have control of them. And and um, if you could get them to cry, that was ideal. And and so there were stories of uh, branch managers paying their loan officers bonuses for getting people to cry. Loan officers at, at the end of the week calling around to the different branches to see who had the most borrowers cry. Because once you did that, once you 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 know you, you reached inside and, and and touched people psychologically, then they were looking for you for, for a solution, for a financial solution to to you know to help help. Uh, uh, take care of their problems. And when when you had that, then you could pretty much sell them anything you wanted. That's really frightening. And that was the thing that really, uh, I think, will strike with, strike anybody who reads this book is the kind of disgusting, unethic, unethical, immoral behavior, whatever you want to call it, of the people who were the predatory lenders, the people who were working for the mortgage companies who were getting these people uh, to sign on to these loans. Were you, well, do you think uh, the American public is aware of how much predatory lending, how much, uh, how much of a scam the entire financial crisis that was fueled by the housing crisis, uh, how much of this was all based on a scam? How much of it was based on, I don't know if, uh, well, I guess criminal fraud. How, do you think the American public is aware of how much fraud is involved in the financial crisis we've gone through? I think probably not. I think people have a vague idea there was some bad stuff going on out there, uh, but I don't think most people understand 
quite uh, how significant the fraud was and how much fraud was driving what was going on. You know, there's a lot of lot of folks who say, oh, you know, um, these people, you know, these borrowers, they just, you know, they, they, you know, they wanted to buy big mansions or they were using their houses like ATM machines. They should have known better. And and you know, there is some truth in that with some bars. There were some bars who who, who gamed the system. There are people who are house flippers. They're, they're definitely there are always folks like that who are going to try and take advantage. But you know what I found with with most of you know through my reporting and talking to uh, uh, investigators and and you know talking to borrowers and and especially talking to insiders who worked in the industry you know most of the bars were just regular folks who were trying to do the right thing they were they were thought they were getting a lower interest rate they thought they were getting a better deal they were persuaded that they'd be crazy if they didn't you know uh, you know you know get a loan right now because because the rates were so low. Or they were, you know, they were trying to pay off medical bill, you know, unexpected medical bills because their health insurance was was crappy. Or they were trying to, you know, get some cash to help put their kids through college. And and when they did this, very often, in many many cases, they got uh, ensnared in really elaborate traps that were were laid by uh, sophisticated players who were being funded by by Wall Street. But what they were doing at times must have been illegal because you talk about uh, this uh, in particular this one woman who is signing on to refinance her place for either the second or third time. I'm not too sure if it's actually in that scenario, but you write about how uh, there would be loan officers who would give you a stack of paperwork for your loan paperwork. On the top few pages of papers, it would have it at a fixed rate, at a lower amount. And then after about maybe page 10, it turns into uh, an inflatable... uh, mortgage it can go up and down uh and but that's like 12 pages in so you think that well, you're signing a, one document but then you're actually signing another document yeah and, and actually you, you're very right except it's probably after page 40 because these stacks of documents that you sign at a loan closing are really thick and and, and a lot of these uh loans were so complex that it would take you know a cpa or a lawyer would take them you know two hours to read through them and figure out exactly what they meant so would, um, I mean, how would you feel about somebody who says then that these people who say they are victims, they're just stupid. It's their own damn fault. If they were going to go into something that was this important of a deal that was going to cost them this much money, they should have gotten an accountant or a lawyer to look through that paperwork. What would you say to somebody? Well, I mean, I mean that that would be my advice, and and I kind of think it, you know I've tried to come up with a metaphor to deal with that with that that very question. Right, right. And the best thing to come up with, and maybe it's not perfect, is you know if you walk down. A dark street, which you've never been down before, you know, uh, and you get mugged, and somebody takes your wallet. It's it's certainly you know, you know, I think it's certainly okay to say, you know, that wasn't a good idea walking down that 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 blind blind alley, you know, walking down that that street at that time of night. Um, you know, you shouldn't do that again. But that doesn't excuse the person who took your wallet, right? That doesn't doesn't say it was okay for them to have taken your wallet. Um, and of course, that's not a perfect metaphor because partly because, uh, you know, <laughs> extending out a little bit more, you know, there was a sign at the at the you know at the corner that was that was you know very official looking that said you know you know government insured or you know a Wall Street backed you know which said you know this is a legitimate company this is corporate America this is Washington Mutual this is Wells Fargo um, or, or often you know the lenders were were you know had had the na- had American in some way in their name and it just you know they seem like very legitimate companies you know uh, AmeriQuest uh, AmeriQuest was the sponsor of the 2005 Super Bowl halftime show with Paul McCartney 
it was you know it was the sponsor of AmeriQuest Field with a stadium where the, the Texas Rangers played baseball. So and, and they were were everywhere. So they seemed you know they didn't seem like fly by nights. So it was easy for folks to 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 get caught up in this this kind of stuff. And again, you know, like like one of the um, um, one of the loan officers for First Alliance, you know, who, who told me about the monster and 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 you know their sales techniques. You know, he said, you know, people always ask me, what were these people stupid? And and he said no. And he said no, they weren't stupid. It was just that we were that damn good. We were so good. And you know, you're talking about loan officers who are gonna who are doing. 10, 15 loans a month, you know, 50, 100 loans a year, companies, of course, that are doing thousands of loans a year, and then you have a borrower who is doing, in his lifetime, you know, one, two, three, four, five loan, five mortgages in a lifetime, and of course, the, the mortgages they took out in this era of the, the mortgage boom were very different from probably the ones they had taken out five or ten years before, because everything had changed. But they went into it with the assumption that, oh, this is, you know, this is the same thing. I signed this with, you know, with my local uh, bank uh, 10 years ago, but this seems like a good deal, and this seems like a good, good legitimate national company, so I'll just sign the paperwork. And even on, on top of that, not only were they uh, doing more mortgages than before, they're being rewarded for doing more mortgages before and getting them out there as soon as possible. And what, so we see these people who you even write about uh, people holding up paperwork up to a window and then forging the name, tracing the person's name through the paperwork onto another sheet of paperwork. I mean, this is really in, intense kind of uh, fraudulent work that was going on. But people thought that this, uh, but they, they all thought that real estate was con- going to constantly go up and up and up. Was that probably the biggest underlying problem, the biggest myth that people were told over and over and over again by the media that real estate is always a good investment and will always go up? Was that an underlying myth that everybody embraced that caused this problem? Absolutely. Uh, it, 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 it hurt the borrowers. It hurt the homeowners because they, they did have that belief. And, and, and really the business model of, of the mortgage industry became, you know, was based on this idea that, that that home values were were going to continue going up, and not just going up, you know, like creeping up every year, but going up and and you know, in, in a strata, strata, you know, just going up in a, a really uh, dramatically every right. year. Um, and and so what they were able to do is is you know this this would allow borrowers to continue refinancing over and over again. So mm-hmm. you could make a loan that was really unpayable. That maybe the borrower didn't understand this, but you knew this because you knew when it when the loan adjusted upward. In six months or two years, sometimes there was a there was a interim there. Uh, the borrower wasn't going to be able to able to afford it. So often you often borrowers got got trapped in these cycles where they would get a loan. You know, eventually, it would get to a point they couldn't couldn't afford it. Then they would refinance either with the same company or with a different company, and they would go through maybe a series in five years, go through a series of maybe four loans. And it's not because they were in, in many cases because they were trying to cash out equity or take out. I mean, often they would get very little new money. Mm-hmm couple thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, but the the point was is they were just trying to take care of the old loan which they could no longer afford and they wanted to get another one that would temporarily stave off the disaster. So in the end they, they would you know, many bars would collapse, say, on the fourth loan. But statistically it would go in and it would go down in the books as three quote unquote successful loans, right? Because right. the first three loans were paid off by the next loan. Right. And then the fourth loan would be considered a, a, a failed loan, a bad loan. But the truth was is they were all for bad loans doomed to fail. But statistically, with the lenders, you know, default rates looked much lower because of this ability to refinance people over and over again. And then the other thing was, is that the bars, if you're, if you're the lenders, if you're a lender 
and you're able to double or triple your loan volume every year or so, your defaults, which, you know, it might take a couple years before somebody falls into default because of the way the adjustable rates work, your, your defaults, say, from 2003 by 2006, you might have really high defaults from the 2003 loans you made, but because you've, you've quadrupled your volume, it looks like a very tiny percentage of a much enlarged base now. Right. So in, in some ways, it was sort of like a Ponzi-like thing. As long as you keep growing, you could hide the fact that you were making bad loans. So are this are these same people are the people who were signing off on these loans? Is it possible that some of those same people are the people who are now uh, through the same kind of production line process? They're uh, signing off on tons of foreclosures at incredibly high rates. Uh, I, I think so. I mean, some of the you know, of course, some of the same companies that were were involved, uh, um, you know, in in making uh, these really uh, uh, bad loans, abusive loans. Are now the ones that are that are servicing. You know, the loan servicers, the ones that are responsible for for taking the loans into foreclosure. And, you know, many of the practices are the same. You've got forged documents, um, um, that kind of thing. You know, that happened at the front of the deal, and now at the back end in the foreclosure, you've got uh, evidence of backdate, backdated documents. You've got evidence of perjured uh, affidavits filed with the courts. And, you know, you've gotten some people who've argued, oh, well, yeah, okay, maybe the paperwork's not done done right, but these people aren't paying their loans, and therefore, you know, they should be foreclosed on. And, and that's true. There are some people who just can't afford their loans, and perhaps they should go into foreclosure, or they should do a short sale on the house and, mm. and get out of the deal. But there are a lot of folks who are only in foreclosure because, A, they, they, they were they were taken advantage of at the front end in the origination and the making of the loan, right. or, B, in the servicing of the loan, you know, because you have these companies, the loan servicers, the big banks and other firms whose job is to, you know, collect the monthly payments, but they are incentivized to really push people into default. So if you're if you're late with one payment, you're 30 days late, you're struggling, you had to go in the hospital, so you missed some days from work, their incentive is not to help you get back on your feet and, you know, catch up the payments. Their incentive is to load you up with as many late fees and, and add-on insurance costs and inspection fees and all these kind of things. So suddenly, you know, you're rather than being $1,500 in the hole, suddenly you're, you're $4,000 in the hole, and then you can't make it, and so there's more late fees, and it becomes like the cartoon snowball rolling down the hill. So there have been lots of lawsuits alleging that the loan servicers, um, you know, really take advantage of people and, and push people into into to default and, and therefore into foreclosure. Uh, Bank of America uh, paid... Um, Earlier this year, a $108 million settlement with the Federal Trade Commission over a couple of units that it, a couple of loan servicing units that, that it had bought, that it had picked up when it bought Countrywide that were, according to the, to the FTC, uh, misrepresenting what people actually owed and, and you know, gouging them with, with uh, unfair and often illegal fees. We're speaking with Michael W. Hudson. He is the author of The Monster, How a Gang of Predatory Lenders and Wall Street Bankers Fleeced America and Spawned a Global Crisis. If you go to the front page of our website, you can click on the publisher's, uh, the link of the link to the publisher. It takes you directly to the publisher's webpage where you can purchase the book. Um, Michael, you uh, were talking before about how 
your, your metaphor about being mugged on a street, and at least there's a sign at the end of the street saying something like America or AmeriQuest or you know the official sponsor of the Super Bowl makes you think that this is going to be a safe street for you to go down, but then you get robbed on it. Now, people believed in the mortgages AmeriQuest was selling because the prestigious Lehman Brothers backed them and they wouldn't risk their reputation, right. supposedly, uh, which dated back, you know, they wouldn't risk, supposedly risk their reputation, uh, which dated back to the beginning of the company in 1850. But in the end, the scam took down Lehman, uh, which had to file for bankruptcy and was sliced up and sold off piece by piece. March 2010 report shows Lehman used, quote, a materially misleading picture of the firm's financial condition in late 2007 and 2008. The report also showed that Lehman used a hinky accounting procedure. Uh, That action could be seen to implicate both Ernst & Young, the bank's accountancy firm, and Richard S. Fold Jr., the former CEO. This could could potentially lead to Ernst & Young being found guilty of financial mispractice and Fold facing time in prison. So the scam, scam ends up taking down Lehman Brothers, a 160-year-old firm, ends up taking down Ernst & Young, one of the biggest accountancy firms in the country. Uh, so what is the legacy of the subprime scam? Is it a global loss in confidence in America's markets because they seem too wild? Or is that just the direction that America's markets are kind of people accept that that's what they are? Well, well it's interesting. We, we have these sort of, sort of uh, booms that are kind of manufactured, uh, you know, or at least puffed up based on smoke and mirrors. and But we kind of forget. We have a tendency to forget these things. You know, we, we had, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble, which there, there's actually, you know, there's a lot of legitimate uh, uh, financial activity in, in, in that because, you know, there, there were new uh, products being invented and lots of innovations, but there was also a lot of, lot of uh, sort of puffery there where, you know, you know, you you didn't have to actually have anything. You just needed like a a few page, you know, several page business plan, and suddenly you were getting millions and millions from investors and and, and venture capitalists. And you know that that crashed, and we sort of, you know, but but we kind of as a society we kind of forgot about it. And then you know we had the, you know all the accounting scandals of the late nineties, early two thousands, Enron and WorldCom. Um, you know that that created all kinds of havoc, and we sort of forgot about that too. So, I mean, I'm my, my real question is, how long will it be before we forget the lessons of the mortgage debacle and the, and the financial crisis? Right, exactly. I assume that we're going to be forgetting these too. I mean, you have this guy uh, who was involved in shape, this guy, uh, Roland Arnall, the guy who uh, is eventually behind AmeriQuest. Uh, he's involved in shady deals and constantly uh, almost going under during the 1970s. Then he comes around again in the 1980s for the SNL crisis. Again, he's linked to that, has to do some things in order to uh, change what the way SNLs in Southern California are set right. up. Uh, and he comes around again for the housing and foreclosure crisis. I mean, if this guy wasn't dead, I'd expect him to pop up again during the next home financing crisis. Not only do we forget about uh, the recent problems that we just had, but we forget even about the people who were involved in the most recent problems, and we bring them around for the next set of problems. So, it, I mean, what do you think that this portends for the future? Do you think the people who were involved in this housing crisis, in the financial crisis, the people who did make money off of this, we can expect them to be around for the next bubble, for the next crisis? Uh, uh, many of them, I think so. And, and, and a matter of fact, there, there, there has been, you know, my uh, the news organization that I work for, the Center for Public Integrity, has done some really good reporting about uh, how um, a former subprime uh, uh, people from the subprime market have gotten into the to the FHA lending, you know, the government sponsored lending, and, and there have been lots of problems there. So, uh, 
you know, there's always folks who are going to sort of jump on the next uh, next opportunity to make lots of money. And there's nothing wrong with, with jumping on an opportunity to make lots of money, but it's just a question of, of, of how you do it and, and whether you, you follow some basic rules of, of, of honesty and, and fair dealing. Well, you do quote uh, Roy Bar- or Ray Barnes, the Jordan, uh, Georgia governor, former yeah, Georgia Roy governor, Barnes, yeah, uh, who uh, sorry, Roy Barnes, who fought to uh, hold Wall Street accountable for abusive lending and was voted out of office for doing so in 2003. You write, uh, surveying the government's response to the financial crisis, former Governor Barnes saw little reform. Barnes said, "We're rebuilding the same system rather than trying to make changes." The way Barnes saw it, uh, the only way to end uh, the scourge of uh, dirty paper in the mortgage market was to have tough assigner liability rules that force everyone in the process to take responsibility. Bankers, he said, should be required to ask themselves, do I really want to make this loan? Because I may have to eat it. So right now in the process that we have now, bankers don't have to ask themselves that it do, you know, should I make this loan? Cause I might have to eat it. And people who are signing off on loan officers, do they have to, it sounds like they don't have to follow any laws or rules or regulation. They can put anything they want on paperwork, and there is no responsibility uh, for what they do. Right. Well, I mean, there are definitely laws and regulations they have to follow, but but because the incentives are are such that yeah, because of the incentives, they often uh, uh, don't ignore them because they're because the laws aren't being enforced, and also okay. because the you know the the, the possibility uh, for them to make huge amounts of money is so big. But you know, basically, you know, you go back a generation or two, or a couple generations, let's say. And if you got a mortgage, you went to a lo- your local bank branch, your local SNL, and um, you know your loan officer was probably the 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 VP, you know the, the the bank vice president. He sat in a corner office, and his job was to say no as often as he said yes. He had to make a determination: is this a good loan? Is it likely to be repaid? And of course, that was you know the bank didn't want to didn't want to you know get caught with loans that, that were defaulting. Um, but you know, you flash forward, uh, you know, thirty years, forty years to two thousand four, two thousand five, and a loan officer was a twenty-three year old kid who, six months before, had been working at Radio Shack, and he's he's you know comes into a place like AmeriQuest, and um, they show him the the movie uh, Boiler Room as a training film about how to sell. Uh, they sit him down with a headset and they say, you know, you make. Um, you know, you make 200 calls a day, or you're out of here. You're, you're history. Uh, but hey, if you're able to sell some loans, if you're able to start selling loans, you're going to make lots of money. You're going to make $10,000 your first month. You're going to buy a nice car, and you know, get locked into the lifestyle. Um, so it was just, it was just a very different model. And, and the, the thing that, that allowed this to happen was, instead of holding the loans, the, the, the people who were making the loans were selling them off to other lenders, who then sold them off to. To Wall Street, which then moved, you know, moved the loans into to shell corporations uh, that that held big pools of loans from all over the country, and then they sold, you know, then they sold investments, bonds, backed by the income streams from from the loans held in the pool. So, no, you know, it was an easy way for everyone. If there was a problem with the loan, if the borrower said, "Hey, you know, I was a victim of predatory lending. I was lied to about what the loan was." Uh, it was very easy for everyone in the chain to say, oh, well, that wasn't me. That was somebody else down the line. Of course, you go down the line, and the mortgage broker or the small lender who originated, you know, who, who got the loan started, who, who did the dirty work, has gone out of business or moved to another state or changed names. 
Right. And you've been talking about how a predatory lender will uh, target somebody. Uh, the person will go under on that loan. And then once they go under on the refinance loan, it sets off alarms in refinancing places. And all of a sudden, they have more predatory lenders offering them more predatory loans based on the fact that they were going to lose out on that loan. You quote uh, a woman by the name of, uh, or a gentleman by the name of Prentice Cox, uh, the assistant attorney general in Minnesota who led the state's investigation of AmeriQuest. Uh, Prentice drafted the uh, Minnesota Subprime Borrower Relief Act, which would have allowed struggling borrowers to delay foreclosure sales for up to a year. Republican uh, governor and presidential hopeful Tom Pawlenty uh, vetoed the bill that would have helped those who were scammed by subprime. You write how Prentice Cox testified before Congress in favor of a new federal consumer financial protection agency, telling a House uh, committee that predatory lending had been a disaster before it was a crisis. It had harmed millions of Americans long before it was recognized as the primary cause of the nation's financial meltdown. If it harmed millions already, why, in your opinion, why, had it, uh, why hadn't it been reported until around September 2008? Why didn't we hear about subprime beforehand if, we, uh, if this had already uh, hurt so many people? Well, it was, you know, it, it was, it was this sort of slow-moving disaster. It wasn't everyone defaulting at once. People, you know, as I said, it would take two years before people would realize they couldn't afford the loan or, or, or you, know, they're, they're, you know, they were taking money out of their 401k or, or going to a pawn shop, you know, trying to find ways to pay the loan, and then they would have to get another loan. And, but because of this sort of repeated financing, there was a lot of pain. People were suffering. And, you know, and, and when you're worried about your finances, that causes all kinds of problems. It causes problems in marriages. Causes you know the stress can cause health problems, um, so so you know the the disaster was kind of slow moving, and there were you know um, um, the statistics show that most subprime you know some of the studies show that most subprime loans about one out of five were going to go under eventually within five years, but of course it would take you know as I said it would take you know it was this sort of long long scenario you know the difference was at the end when the um, when the housing market uh, uh, started to cool off and property values weren't going up, and so people couldn't refinance and the lenders couldn't refinance people and keep growing their volume, um, that's when it when you know it's like a game of musical chairs. That's when the music stopped and and and, and lots of people were caught. So it wasn't just that all of a sudden people stopped making money. Because I was thinking, one of the things that I keep noticing with any of these financial scandals is there's no scandal until people stop making money. No matter how immoral, unethical, or even criminal the actions are of the people's people who are involved that are promoting whatever that part of the whatever that financial deal is, uh, as long as they're still making money, nobody really cares. So it's not just that people stop making money. It's that the people at the bottom of the pyramid started realizing that this was a scam. Uh, I guess so, or just they, they were caught. I, I think it was I think it was a little bit of what you said first. at first. I think people stopped making money, investors stopped making money, investors started losing money, and suddenly it became a big crisis. It was not considered a crisis as I said, when when millions of bars were being you know were being hit with, right. with really un, unfair loans and getting trapped and and, and going into this sort of slow moving uh, uh, disaster for per, you know family disaster. So, uh, but, but it, it's not a problem though. One, when a whole bunch of small guys are having a problem, it's not a story. But once right. a big guy has a problem, then it's a story. Once a big investment, and that's what I found looking at a lot of these a lot of these sort of things. 
it, it's the the thing that really gets government investigators and the media uh, interested mm. is when investors start taking a hit right. rather than, than than consumers rather than, than just average average joes. Yeah, investors rather than workers. I was just uh, saying last week how I was watching on uh, Fox News Channel. They were talking about uh, the bailouts and in general, and they said, you know, uh, or the car bailout. I think is what they were speaking out specifically. Actually, they said, uh, you know, these bailouts may have been a bailout for the workers, but what kind of bailout were they for the investors? As if the investors are people that we should be protecting more than the workers. I think it shows kind of a flip-flopped idea of the way that you're supposed to be looking at the world around. You're trying to help out the workers, the, the working uh, person, the, rather than just uh, the person who's trying to make money off of money. So where were the whistleblowers? After all, we, you know, we even had uh, Bernie Madoff back in the early part of the last decade, long before his scam fell apart. Even Madoff uh, had Harry Markopoulos, an independent financial fraud investigator who was going uh, before the SEC as early as the early, what, 2000s. Markopoulos testified that the SEC is captive to the industry it regulates and it is afraid of bringing big cases against the largest, most powerful firms. Clearly, the SEC was afraid of Mr. Madoff. Whoever was supposed to be doing due diligence or in, uh, oversight over AmeriQuest, Lehman Brothers, uh, whoever in this uh, predatory loaning uh, industry, were they also captive to the housing and financial industry? Were they afraid of AmeriQuest's uh, Roland Arnell? I don't know if it was afraid, but but definitely, um, uh, you know, the, the the federal regulators accepted this idea that any kind of, of you know limits on what the the mortgage industry could do would be um, would, would would a hurt hurt the banking industry and b it would deprive consumers of access to credit and would hurt the, you know the effort to to grow home ownership. Uh, but of course, that was kind of the whole home ownership thing was kind of a fig leaf because the truth was, you know, AmeriQuest, which called itself the proud sponsor of the American Dream, and they were always talking about home ownership in their press releases and and, and that kind of thing. You know, not uh, many. You know, ninety nine percent of their loans were refis. They weren't making home, they weren't helping people buy homes. They were making it more likely that people were going to lose their homes because they were loading them up on debt. Um, so, um, and, and I forget your original question. So, what was your original question? <laughs> I'm not too sure anymore either. And I'm uh, going on. That's okay. Uh, you know, the other excuse that we always hear, the other reason that we always hear that where people uh, are right. attacking uh, the or the way that they parse, the way that they analyze the situation, is they blame the entire uh, for, uh, foreclosure crisis, the housing crisis. Uh, they blame the entire thing on uh, government entities. They uh, blame it on uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, relative to the uh, fraud, a lot, a lot of the fraudulent actions that you saw that were conducted by uh, loan officers within AmeriQuest. Uh, how important, how significant is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's role uh, relative to the predatory lending? You know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac definitely played a role in this. Uh, they helped exacerbate, uh, worsen the crisis, um, but they really followed. Uh, the private players, the AmeriQuest, the New Centuries, and Washington Mutuals, and the Wall Street players, and into this. And in some ways, they were they were actually were losing market share. So at the end of the boom, they started you know started bankrolling more of the more of the risky loans. Um, you know, most of government's um, uh, responsibility for this was was not one of action. I mean, they weren't government was not going out and forcing. Banks to make subprime loans. That's one of the myths that has kind of grown out of this. The, you know, government's uh, uh, problem was was one of inaction. They they didn't police the market. 
Uh, and, and, you know, both Fannie and Freddie could have used their power in the market in their size and their clout to have uh, pushed for and really enforced better rules about, you know, if you're going to make this loan, you need to document people's income. Uh, also, you need to make sure that the appraisals are accurate and not, not falsified. You know, very basic things, sensible uh, steps that needed to be taken. Uh, Fannie and Freddie could have could have helped push those, and you know the, the 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 federal regulators, all the banking agencies, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development could have done more to uh, to keep the market from spinning out of control and becoming just sort of like a like a casino. And so, where the and that's what the question I was asking you about before was: so, where were the whistleblowers? Where was the oversight? Uh, were they just intimidated by Arnold? Were they just intimidated by the industry? Was the industry just making so much money that the gov- uh, government oversight, government enforcement wasn't wasn't interested in uh, looking into something that was making money? Right. Well, you know, and, and going internally in these companies, I mean, many of these companies did have sort of in- people who were supposed to be internal whistleblowers. Right. You know, they had mortgage fraud investigators. But but they generally were were more fig leaves than 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 anything else. Um, they provided cover where the company say, oh, we have you know we have the of course we right. have no problems because we have this. But you know I, I've interviewed lots of people who worked as fraud investigators and loan underwriters whose job was to spot fraud, and and you know they tell me again and again that when they uh, when they did their jobs and they found fraud and 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 red flagged it, they were ignored, harassed. Demoted and fired, and, and so um, you know the internal gate gatekeeping uh, process was just completely neutralized. And then you know the, the the government, which is supposed to a you know make sure that this is you know that the companies do, do have have gatekeeping that that really works, and b they're supposed to protect whistleblowers. They're supposed to you know um, just did didn't do enough to to do that. You know, I did a story for the Center for Public Integrity uh, a few months ago about the the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which had some really tough whistleblower provisions. But in the first eight years of the act, uh, the Department of Labor had upheld only 2% of whistleblower claims where people were coming in and saying there was fraud going on in my workplace. So that, wow. you know, what what kind of message does that send to people you know, first of all, you're trying to hold on to your job. You're afraid if you say something, you're going to lose your job. And so, why do you? Why would you take that step if you know that if you see from all the signs, uh, and or you go to an attorney and say, "Hey, you know, uh, what can I do about this?" If the attorney's saying, "Well, you know, it's really difficult because there's not many protections for whistleblowers, or the protections that are on the books are enforced," so why would you risk your job if? You know, you're in a situation where, where you know, if if, if you blow the whistle and nothing's going to happen, right? So it's difficult, and, and, and you know, I, but I have to say, I mean, I called, I spent a lot of time talking to former employees, just you know, calling them on the phone, telling them who I am, telling them I'm working on a book or working on an article, and and so many times people were just so almost relieved, like I, I wish somebody had called me during during you know, you know, while all this was going on, you know, I wish I'd had some way to get this out sooner. I, I want to tell it now. Um, you know, there were lots of people on the inside who saw what was going on. There were some people who just said, hey, this is great. I'm going to make lots of money, and, I'm, you know, if I have to cheat, that's fine. Everybody else is doing it. But there were lots of people who were really upset by this and, and, and or, or felt guilty about the things they were doing and, and wanted to change or just or, or just really said, I'm not going to do that and, and quit the industry. But, you know, there wasn't enough attention either from government, I think, or the media 
to help bring these stories out and bring these people forward. Yeah. I also find it ironic that the community organizing group ACORN actually fought subprime mortgages and AmeriQuest back in 2000. So one of the few watchdogs who was doing anything about subprime, though they you know came up a little bit short too, is now gone based on misleading videotape. Lies fueled the subprime market right. and lies fueled the demise of the only organization that was fighting the subprime racket. So are we less protected now from the next scam uh, the banks pull on us when it comes to housing uh, because ACORN is gone? Right. Well, that's a difficult question because, you know, ACORN wasn't the only organization fighting uh, um, fighting the problem. And, and, and one of the, the, the issues with ACORN, and, and clearly, as you're, you're right, I mean, all the, all the investigations have shown that, that this... Uh, <laughs> This recent videotaped "quote unquote" expose of Acorn was was bogus, and they you know doctored the or they they, they cut it in a way to to make it look different from what really happened. But what happened? You know, one of the problems with Acorn and one of the problems with with lots of community groups is okay, you put pressure on the lenders, and what do you do? You know, uh, to, to get to get them to change their practices. And what happened was is a lot of these activist groups reached settlements with the lenders. And and which which funneled money into their you know into their organizations to help make you know better loans for their you know for their constituencies, but what happened is in two thousand back in two thousand the the Federal Trade Commission was was considering investi- you know was starting an investigation of AmeriQuest. Acorn was helping to fuel that. Uh, they were they were funneling uh, you know uh, complaints borrowers complaints to the FTC. But then AmeriQuest and Acorn got together, and they reached a settlement where AmeriQuest said that you know we'll fund loans through your organization, and you can you know you can make sure they're fair and they're they're good rates. And so so Acorn actually um, uh, basically became partners with AmeriQuest for a time, and 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 gave uh, AmeriQuest cover to continue growing, and and eventually the FTC dropped the investigation because if the activist group that's you know trying to push this. Is, is now you know saying AmeriQuest is is great and they've changed their you know changed their stripes. Why should we as a government agency you know stick our stick our necks out? So it's a very complicated thing that you know that there were but you know there were there's some good community groups that uh, have been fighting this issues for, for for many years, but you know they didn't get traction. Um, that they either a you know went into these settlements which really didn't do anything to change the company's practices, or B, they just couldn't get traction because they couldn't get the, the federal government, they couldn't get regulators, they couldn't get legislators to listen. Well, that's crazy. You know, I never heard that uh, ACORN was involved. I mean, that's almost like greenwashing for AmeriQuest. Right. And and you understand, like, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea if you're a community right. group, you, you want to see some, some, some real action and, and the idea of funneling fair credit to to your constituents, to makes people in, in low-income neighborhoods, makes sense. But if you do a settlement, you really have to make sure that you know when a company says, "Oh, we we have all the you know we're you know we're issuing a, a statement of best practices and we're going to do all these things." Well, AmeriQuest issued all these best best practices, and many uh, fair lending activists, you know, pra- were actually praising AmeriQuest, saying you know they were the best best in the business and they were helping change practices in the subprime. And it wasn't until Scott Record and I wrote a, a, a an expose for the LA Times in early two thousand five on the eve of the Super Bowl that AmeriQuest was, you know, sponsoring the halftime show. Uh it you know, it wasn't until then that that, that sort of the tie changed and, and people started questioning, you know, publicly whether whether AmeriQuest was was all that it was cracked up to be. I mean they were you know, they they, they were considered the gold standard. Right. But 
evidence was is that they were as predatory and probably more predatory than just about anybody in the business. And that was the group that was run by this Roland Arnall, who was eventually uh, ends up the ambassador to the Netherlands under President Bush. Uh, what does that say about the, I mean, it says a lot about the amount of connections that he must have had within Washington, D.C., within the Beltway. He became an ambassador to the Netherlands. That's one of those Cush embassy jobs. Uh, you must have a lot of uh, political connections. I'm sure that he uh, pushed forward his agenda of doing whatever he can to help out the subprime market because that's where he was making all of his money. Uh, in the end, is all can all of these problems, all the problems that you discovered when you were writing The Monster, again, we're speaking with uh, Michael W. Hudson. He's the author of The Monster, How a Gang of Predatory Lenders and Wall Street Bankers Fleeced America and Spawned a Global Crisis. Can all of these problems uh, that we face in the housing crisis, that we face in the foreclosure crisis, that we face in the financial crisis, do you think that all of these problems can be easily fixed simply by having public financing of elections or some sort of intense campaign finance reform that actually works, not just McCain fine gold, which just created a different way in which you can uh, fund your candidates? Right. I mean, that, that's a good question. I, I don't. You know, I'm not. I, I, I'm. I'm not good on policy. And, and as a reporter, I usually. I probably don't say. Here's what we should do. Uh, I, I try to leave that to other people. But. But. Right. But certainly, the, the. You know, the power of money in politics, and the, and the power of money to influence uh, how decisions are made and what laws are passed, or how they're. In, or not even just what laws are passed, but how they're enforced once they're passed. It, you know, has a big impact on this. And, uh, you know, Roland and all, uh, he and his companies and people connected with his companies, in, in a period, I think, of, of about five years, gave tw- uh, $20 million to both, you know, state and federal uh, uh, office holders or, or candidates. So that's an incredible amount of money. And in just about any state you went into where they were fighting over, over you know, tougher regulations on, um, on uh, subprime lending, uh, AmeriQuest was there. They had had the lobbyists there. They were giving campaign donations. Um, you know, I think the Washington Post reported that that Arnall was George Bush's biggest uh, in his comp- You know, in his companies were George Bush's biggest bankrollers in the 2004 election cycle. Although I hasten to add that Arnall also, you know, gave lots of money to Democrats too. Right, right. All those so guys, they always hedge their bets. He was an e- equal opportunity. Um, <laughs> campaign giver. So. <laughs> uh, that's always a good way to bet on both horses if it's only a two-bet race, uh, two-horse race. We're speaking with uh, Michael W. Hudson. He is author of The Monster, How a Gang of Predatory Lenders and Wall Street Bankers Fleeced Americans Spawned a Global Crisis. He's a staff writer at the Center for Public Integrity. You can find out more about that organization by going to publicintegrity.org. He has worked as a reporter for The Wall Street Journal as an investigator for the Center for Responsible Lending and is a winner of the George Polk Journalism Award. Uh, Michael, one last question question for you, and it is our question from hell. It's a question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience might hate the response to. Um, in the end, uh, it sounds like this is a market gone wild, a guy who's uh, driven by insatiable desires for profits. Uh, but uh, in the end, can't we just say that this proves the, uh, the foreclosure crisis, the housing crisis, the subprime lending crisis, the predatory lending? Doesn't this all prove that the market still works? Because in the end, AmeriQuest is gone. 
Lehman Brothers is gone. Places like, uh, you know, other predatory lenders like Countrywide, they're gone. All these places have gone out of business. They're now completely bankrupt. They have no money left over. Uh, The market worked. Uh, All these crimes and frauds may have been committed against the American uh, taxpayer, the American citizen. We may have been scammed a lot, but these companies did go out of business. So, in the end, did the market work? Well, um, you know, that's that's a great question. You know, yes, the companies went out of business, but the people behind them, I mean, Roland Arnold um, uh, died with, you know, a billionaire. You know, he didn't have to give, uh, he, he had to give back a fraction of that. He had a settlement of, of uh, $325 million, um, with, with uh, state regulators all over the country. Um, and, you know, most of these folks, these CEOs, executives, um, even some of the loan officers, I mean, yes, their companies failed, their companies went out of business, but not before, you know, they siphoned out millions and sometimes billions of dollars. So, uh, I mean... When, when you're asking whether whether the system worked, whether the market worked, I think you have to take that that into account. And of course, uh, the, I think you can talk to a lot of folks out there who will say the market didn't work for me. Homeowners, people who've lost their homes, people who lived in their homes for you know not house slippers, but people who had lived in their homes for ten years, twenty years, you know, twenty five years, and suddenly they're they're out in the street, they're living in an apartment that you know, and, and it causes all these ripple effects on on their on their lives and affects their kids. You know, what is it like if you're an 11 year old and, and, you know, mommy and daddy who you look up to and love, you know, suddenly, you know, they lose the house. How does that affect you? Right. Uh, and I guess that is the legacy of, uh, and, but I just think that the same thing is going to happen again there. And like you were saying earlier, I think we're going to have people who are smart enough to figure out another vulnerability in the system and they're going to exploit that uh, vulnerability. Then they're going to make a ton of money, uh, enough money to get people interested in them and invest in them. And then they're going to lose in, uh, all, lose a whole bunch of money. And then those losses are going to be uh, socialized. And all of a sudden, all the taxpayers are going to have to pick up the bill right. yet again. I mean, it seems to be this cycle that's been going on over and over again. So, But, but, it, but it's interesting, you know, for, for a long period of, of several decades in the middle of uh, Sort of from from the really the the, at the you know the the New Deal from the end of depression from mm-hmm. middle of the depression to uh, end of the sixties we had very few bank failures but as we went into this sort of in the in the in the late seventies and into the eighties and through nineties and you know went into this this era of deregulation suddenly we've had all kinds of bank failures you know hundreds of billions of dollars in in uh, market you know. Market power going under, you know, Washington Mutual, the the large, you know, largest bank failure in history, and then lots, hundreds and hundreds of little, you know, little banks going under. So it it it, it doesn't have to happen. Right, but the, the big companies are still buying up these smaller uh, big banks are still buying up the smaller banks that went under. So they're just getting bigger and bigger. It's not a question for me if these banks are too big to fail. For me, it's uh, it, it, are these banks so big that they are not going to allow their agenda of bank deregulation to fail, which is going to continually cause uh, economic problems all the way down the food chain uh, to the poorest people. And there's going to be fewer and fewer banks. I mean, I, haven't they gotten so big that this is agenda is not stoppable. Well, uh, I, I, I think, <laughs> wow, that is a question. No. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think you can never give up. I think that that's part of the problem or part, part of the thing is, is, is if we do become sort of cynical and say nothing works and nothing, you know, nothing, nothing can be done, right. then, then, then that becomes the reality. 
So, but there are people out there who are fighting to change things. There, there, there are reporters who are trying to report the issues. There are, are community activists. There are lawmakers. There, there are people who who want to do this. But you know, it, you know, as a uh, as been said before, you know, uh, policymakers, you know, see the light when they feel the heat. So it, I think it's going to take average folks, um, you know, pushing on this issue and making phone calls and writing letters to the editor and, you know, and, get, and getting involved in the political system. Sweet. I'm going to go home and start wrapping up my torches this evening. <laughs> Michael, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fascinating book, and if anybody wants to know about how the predatory lending went down, I think that this is going to be one of those books that's uh, a book that can be used in a history class in the future because it really dissects an important part, uh, an integral part of the entire housing crisis and the financial crisis that we went through. I really like the book, and I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning, Michael. Th- thanks so much, Chuck. I really appreciate it. It was a great, a great question. All right. Great time. Thank you, sir. Thanks. All right. Take care. Chuck spoke with Michael Hudson in October of 2010. Hi, producer Alex. Thank you for listening to this four giant hour show on the 2008 financial crisis. Speaking of crisis, crises, will Chuck recover from his health crisis and be back next week? Uh, I'd bet on it. See you on the radio. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.